today on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. We open our doors again to one of our top Patreon supporters. This time, we sit down and chat with William Welch, who has been invited to join me to talk about and play some of his favorite film music tracks. This is part two, the two-part series. I really hope you enjoy the show, the chat, and the music. This is the flagship show on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast, which begins now. Since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Woods, and on today's program, I'll be presenting a special show. My guest will be one of our biggest Patreon supporters, and we'll be talking to him in just a moment. But before I begin, I'd like to invite you to join our Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio for just as low as a dollar a month your money goes towards supporting the show by helping to pay for server space domain registrations and new equipment when needed and various other things we also have a thriving community over there right now and we have new patrons signing up each and every week offering their support and they're getting some great benefits for their donations including an opportunity to program their own show uh, you can also participate in the All Request programs. You can also listen to old Cinematic Sound Radio FM broadcasts from my days back at C101.5 FM in Hamilton, Ontario. And on top of that, we'll be introducing a brand new Patreon-only program. It's where I do a deep, deep dive into my collection and play some stuff that you've never heard on the show before, but you can only hear that show if you are a patron of Cinematic Sound Radio. We also love hearing from you, so let us know what you think of the show. Uh, I really do mean that. All of the hosts here at Cinematic Sound Radio love hearing from our listeners, so if you like what you hear, then drop us a line. It only takes a few minutes, and trust me, hearing from you inspires us all and really keeps us going. So if you have anything to say, please send it to Cinematic Sound at yahoo.com. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, it really does help new listeners discover the show and informs them of what the show was all about. Okay, here we are with part two of our chat with uh, Patreon member William Welch. Uh, the first part of this uh, series was excellent, and I cannot wait to continue on and listen to the remaining tracks that you have uh, brought with you today. However, before we get to that, um, I didn't get a chance to ask you this in the first part, and I'm just kind of curious how you discovered Cinematic Sound Radio. Um, I was slightly concerned you are going to ask that question, because <laughs> honestly, I can't quite remember, and I'd love to give a whole spiel of, yes, I was in this one place at this one time, and suddenly I discovered it, and I don't know. I've listened for, for a long time. I guess... Um, 
my love of film music um, sort of branched out into other things like podcasts, for instance. Um, and at some point, um, you see, I don't know whether I think I might have listened to it even before it was a podcast. Probably. I mean, maybe maybe I'm thinking ten years ago, maybe, but yeah, I I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure. I mean, it feels like you and the show have been around for ever for ages. Yeah, yeah, yeah we were. I mean, when I left FM radio, uh, that was back in '06. I then kept the show online, and I just kind of streamed it off my website, and then trying to figure out the logistics behind licensing music for a podcast became uh, one of the reasons why I never did get to the podcast stage until much later. And then I decided, ah, what the heck, let's see, let's just go. I mean, if someone wants to take down my show or send a cease and desist, then I will be more than happy just to say, sure, I'll take that show down and whatever. But, you know, we haven't had any issues with that, which is great. And so you know, with a podcast, I'm just able to reach a larger audience. And I think the podcast has been around since 2016. I could be wrong about that. But yeah, you might have caught up with it when it was just still just streaming on the site. So and a lot of people have come from the streaming uh, version of the show as well. But I mean, I know some people that have also listened to the FM broadcast and, and, you know, the the, the live feed that came from that as well. So but uh, yeah, no, it's always interesting to hear where where someone had found the show, where they were, what they were doing. And uh, yeah, so just I was just curious. But it's something nice as well to listen to as an alternative to just putting on a soundtrack, from, from my point of view anyway. You know, and especially, um, I don't really use the gym so much now. I used to use it a lot um, pre-COVID. Um, I'd go in my lunch hour and, and maybe go three or four times a week. And normally I'd be listening to podcasts at that time. So you, you can work out and listen to stuff. Um, and, it, and it's quite nice to have that as an alternative. And especially your show where we get um, music as well as chat. You know, there's lots of podcasts that deal with um, interviewing film composers, for instance, and they're just as interesting, but obviously you don't get the music. So it's quite nice to have a variety of different um, podcasts. And, and this one really sort of stands out on its own doesn't it as being informative but playing a whole range of of great music as well um and it's it's nice to have one in the background yeah that is indeed true um and that's where a lot of podcasters i mean they're scared to play music and i totally understand that it's still kind of this gray area you're not sure where to go to and who to talk to and it depends on what country you live in and who you have to pay and I mean, I'm I'm not doing it 100% correctly, but at least I've started tr- trying to properly pr- license the program and, and try to do something that necessarily isn't done in the podcast realm. I mean, there's only a handful of shows that I know of, and I mean, it's a small handful of shows that play music on their show and license the tracks that they play. But even some of those podcasts aren't doing it 100% correctly, but... You know, we haven't had any issues and we haven't any problems yet. And I I also find that the show is more of a, it's informative, but it's a promotional tool as well. And I think the record labels that I deal with also realize that as well. They'll send me stuff and they realize they're going to play it on my show. And that's, it's, it's, it's sure it's entertainment, but it's also a way that they can promote their material um, on the podcast and get it out there. And hopefully people like you and whoever else listens to the show will, will buy the stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. There's um there's many a time I've heard tracks um from scores for the first time on on cinematic sound radio. So yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what's so great about this show that we're doing as well. I mean, last last episode you played a score that I had never heard before, which is utterly fascinating. And you have a track here from a score that I had never heard before. And when I saw it, I had to go and uh, find it on YouTube and uh, listen to it. And it was utterly delightful. And And I'll let you know which track uh, that is a little bit later on the program. But we are going to start with, I think, is one of the many Patrick Doyle masterpieces. Uh, this one, when I first heard it, just absolutely blew me away. This is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was directed by the great Kenneth Branagh, a frequent collaborator of uh, Patrick Doyle's. And, I mean, the quintessential track from this score is the creation, but you've brought something else to the table. So why don't you tell us about it? Um, yeah. <laughs> the the go-to track, I guess, for, for most people from this album is is the creation. It, it, it's odd, isn't it, how um, albums often have a go-to um, track. For instance, Patrick Doyle's um, Sense and Sensibility, it's my father's favourite, is is the go-to track from that. And just um, scores sometimes have that. But um, but yeah, for me, I, I, I chose this, um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that in, in, in a second. But um, I wanted to sort of explain, uh, I suppose, my reasoning behind um, picking this score but but more in particular looking at uh, uh, Patrick Doyle who I think is a fantastic composer um unfortunately and this might come up again later on I think he's um uh, a composer that doesn't necessarily do enough um work you know he like you say he as far as I'm aware he's done all of Kenneth Branagh's films um and and he went through a phase of doing um, lots of other stuff you know there's um, the the Harry Potter film, the the Planet of the Apes. Um, he did the first Thor, although obviously that was a Kenneth Branagh film. But but in my opinion, he's he's someone that deserves to get a lot more um, jobs than than he does, unfortunately. And and he himself, when you listen to him talk, he himself talks about being a melody driven composer. You know, he will sit down and and almost sort of come up with a, a bit of a suite. So he knows he's scoring this film. He'll come up with some kind of suite with themes in it and that will then be the basis for that score so he can he can play that to the um to the director and the producers and the studio and say look look here here we've got this amazing melody this theme and then effectively i'm going to build the rest of the score around this so so the, the the way he talks is um yeah i guess probably quite old school now but it but it's very much fundamentally based on a melody and that melody being the the basis of the score um and it was probably around 2005 2006 there was a um a concert um that was being um put on at the barbican in london with the uh, london symphony orchestra um and the barbican wasn't um, a venue I've been to before. Um, I think I'd only ever been to, uh, for um, orchestral stuff, I'd only ever been to the Royal Albert Hall in London. Um, but the the thing for me that tweaked my interest was you had this concert, but there was a, um, a pre-talk beforehand with um, Tommy Pearson, who at the time I think was doing a, a show on Radio 3 for film music. He's a, um, a film music a journalist, radio presenter. Um, and and he was interviewing two film composers before the concert, and it was Patrick Doyle 
and David Arnold. Um, and it was free. So so you, you bought a ticket for the concert and, the, you know, tickets were, I don't know, 15, 20 quid, whatever they were. And and then as as a bonus, from my point of view, as a bonus, you got to go and listen to 45 minute um, talk beforehand of these two composers. And it was the first time I'd ever met and seen composers um, because at, at that point I'd only ever listen to music and I, I might have seen concerts with with film music played but it was always generic you know it was always the the LSO with a conductor and it was playing a, a, a generic bunch of music and and um to be fair this concert w was kind of much uh, much of the same you know it was music from things like Star Wars Indiana Jones Dr Zhivago Pink Panther Titanic I think probably Lawrence of Arabia you know it, it was kind of generic classic Hollywood scores with the added bonus of um, a couple of tracks from Patrick Doyle in the first half and a couple of tracks from David Arnold in the second half, and you had this this pre-talk at, at, at the um, before the concert started, um, and there were probably only I don't know twenty or thirty people there listening, but it was it was absolutely fascinating. It was as I say the first time I'd ever come into contact with composers in 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 real life, and and obviously they. Um, well-regarded and, and, and very interesting composers, both of them. You know, um, obviously people, I think, probably know David Arnold because he, you know, he's a, quite a fun person to listen to. He's obviously very knowledgeable, has a fun Twitter account and stuff. But equally, Patrick Doyle is also quite a fun and, and, and funny um, composer. And, and probably if I think about it, you, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Patrick Doyle's first film was... Henry the Fifth, that's right, for Branner, and that yeah. was around eighty five, eighty six. I think it was eighty nine. Oh, okay, eighty nine. Yeah. And David Arnold's first score was in ninety or ninety one. You know, Young Americans. So I'm trying to think yes. of when that was, but I know that the first like big one was Stargate, and I think that was nineteen ninety four. Yeah, I, I have a feeling it was Young Americans, and I have a feeling that was um, around. Um, around that that same sort of time 1991 so effectively um <clears throat> patrick doyle and, and david arnold have sort of started their careers at the same time so i guess they're um they're similar in 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 their path you know moving upwards and 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 they were both very very interesting people to listen to you know tommy pearson as i say was was someone that that knew about film music and and had talked to composers many a times before so so he he knew sort of some of the, the the right questions to ask to get um really good answers and and it was it was very informative and it was um it was just a i suppose a moment that that stuck with me because it was it was the first time um as i say that i'd i'd ever sort of come face to face with with actual composers and 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 them talking about you know what what they do rather than you know listening to an interview or, or watching an interview it was um it was fascinating and uh so um yeah as i say there were there were um two bits of music from doyle in the first and, and two from arnold in the second um and it was great because david arnold sat in the audience for the first half so a load of us went and chatted to him at, at the interval um and he was you know lovely but bombarded with questions from geeks i suppose about how did you do this and how did you do that um but um, yeah, it was a, a fantastic evening. 
um, and one of the one of the tracks. In actual fact, I, I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it. I, I guess I didn't buy a program or whatever, so I, I couldn't find exactly what the track was. I think it was the creation that was that was played. There was definitely a track from uh, Frankenstein that was played, um, and <clears throat> I think for me, like you said, this this sort of early to mid nineties period. There's some absolute classics from from Doyle, and and this for me may well be my favorite. I mean, it's hard because he's he's done a lot of scores that I like. Um but I think I think this would certainly be be up there. I I think it might be my favorite as I say. Um and I suppose it's a little bit sh of a shame that the film's maybe not quite so good. Um it feels a bit theatrical. It was interesting because I rewatched it um, as I've tried to do. As I said before, I, I tried to rewatch everything that, that I was then playing music for, and luckily it's on Prime here in the UK. So I watched it, um, and I, I still quite enjoyed it. I remember the first time I watched it, and yeah, I quite enjoyed it. But it is very theatrical. Kenneth Branagh, in particular, feels like he's almost on stage most of the time. It's it's very big mannerisms and a big booming voice and He's he's maybe not the star of the show. I think we'd probably both agree that that Robert De Niro steals the show. Um, but well, I say steals the show. Steals the show in terms of the acting. Maybe the music steals the show of the whole film. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, just just something about the whole construction of of this score is is fascinating. I mean, it's it's quite bombastic you know there's quite a lot of brass but there's nice interplay we'll, we'll hear on this particular track there's there's nice interplay between the various sections of the orchestra where you sort of get almost like a call and response thing where you'll get um some kind of um melody or, or, or riff from the horns but then or, or it might even be the brass and the strings together and then you get the woodwinds doing something so you you get it alternating. It's almost, as I say, like a call and response. And annoyingly, I was trying to find um, Doyle talking about this or even an article that's have talked about this because I find it fascinating that as far as I can tell, for the most part, this particular track to think of a story is in 3-4. And I mentioned that before as being what you'd normally describe as waltz time. So it's one, two, three, one, two, three. But it has... For me, in this particular track, as as well with the, the the way it's orchestrated and the way the melody goes, it has a very um, driving feel to it. Almost, if you imagine, because you'll normally, as I say, you'll normally get that with a waltz. If you imagine a waltz and people dancing round and spinning, it almost has that feel of of maybe like your mind spinning or something. And I wonder whether that was the idea that Patrick Doyle had in that he wanted um, this music to kind of immediately hit you and spin you around and, and make you feel like, whoa, there's, there's something going on here. Because this, this particular track is, is the first um, bit of music we hear in the film. So it kind of hits you and it's, you know, as I said, it's quite a bombastic score and this, this track is as well. And it kind of hits you and then, as I say, spins you around. And I find it interesting you get that um, that three, four meter, as I say, I think it's for most of it. I was trying to count. 
and and it's difficult because there might be some bits which which change and actually the creation when i looked it up i could find the sheet music for the creation and that um alternates between three or four different uh meters so you get three four but you also get five four and i think six eight or seven eight so that that jumps around between bars of, of different meters and i think for the most part this is three four but it it has a very driving sort of whirling feel to it that um just opens up that film in in such a way you're suddenly drawn in at least I, I that was the way i felt when i watched it you know immediately you've got this this music and you're like oh right okay what's going on here um and I think it's one of those that, that you can easily listen to again and again and again, and it, and it still gives you the same pleasure that it did the first time you heard it. As I say, I think for me, it's, it's Doyle's best. Um, and I, I suspect it's, it's a score that, that most people will love. I, I don't know what, what your thoughts are. No, I think it's, uh, it's equally praised by everyone i i've never really met anybody that has said anything negative about the score and, you, and you're right about the uh theatrical sense of the film it does feel like brana was like adapting a shakespearean version of frankenstein and not necessarily mary, mary shelley's vision of it. It, it it is very very over the top and i think that's where patrick doyle's score also helps with that it just feels like super over the top overly dramatic does feel like a kind of a golden age uh type of film i i like it i'm not a i i don't think it's horrible unlike uh frank darabont who <laughs> wrote the script and said that it was the best script that he ever wrote and was the worst movie he had ever seen so that's kind of <laughs> That's kind of interesting, but I mean, script writers never, I don't think script writers really like the final product of a movie based on their um, writing anyway. But, um, but I mean, think this time, this early time for, for Patrick Doyle and his career, I mean, he's about five years into it and he's just rolling along. There's nothing that I didn't enjoy that he wrote during this time period. And maybe for the next, you know, since, I mean, like 89 to 90, even further, um, you know, get into the Harry Potter stuff. And then he goes into that big, um, he does a lot of fantasy adventure uh, material. He was just writing one great score after the other in numerous different styles. And I, I love, as you said, the theatrical um, sense behind this score it just allowed him to really um, express himself and, and, and go big, much like the film feels like it is. So, you know, stuff like the creation, which feels like one of the biggest action tracks of all time, feels like it works with that scene. I mean, it's a very busy scene, but you could imagine it being for, for, for a car chase, um, just for the, the, the sheer amount of speed that it's played at. So I think this is one of his, his, his great scores. Um, uh, and I don't think, as I said, I don't think anybody else, um, has anything negative to say about it. I get the impression, and, and you might know maybe more than I do, but when you build a relationship between a director and a composer, in this case, um, uh, Branagh and Doyle, I know it's early days, but I get the impression that he, Branagh, can probably say to Doyle, pretty much do what you want. I, I imagine there's not too much going backwards and forwards of, 
oh well i don't like the version you did of that or you know the main theme here doesn't work or can you rewrite that i imagine there's a lot less of that maybe more now than there was back then i'm not sure but I get the impression there's a lot of trust between these two, especially when you listen to Doyle, the way he talks about Branagh and, and stuff like that. I guess Branagh gave him his, his big break, didn't he? So, yeah, so I mean, it's, they it's quite were, important. They worked together at, I, I'm pretty sure it was the Renaissance Theater uh, Troupe or Company or something like that. So from what I can remember, Doyle was writing music for Branagh's um, stage productions and then when it came time to adapt his first movie, Doyle was along for the ride. And you're right. So once you establish that type of relationship, the trust is, is uh, you know, it's gradual. But like once you have a success, I mean, you keep going on and then you kind of know each other's language and, 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 and you can get a feel for what that person is going to deliver for you. And so I... I'm sure that there is um considerable amount of direction uh, from Brana to Doyle, but I don't think there's a point where Brana is like, you better do this or else. And that's how they, you know, keep their, their strong relationship together. And I would say that even all of their scores, um, I don't think there's a bad one in there. They all seem to be very fresh and they seem to make Doyle's music come alive. Much like when I listen to, and I'm not going to bring up Williams and Spielberg, but like when Silvestri's working with Zemeckis, I find that there's a whole different process there. And I find the music just gets way better when he's working with Robert Zemeckis, whether it's a bad film or not. There's just a little bit more inspiration there and a little bit more feel that I get from a composer and director team that has been working uh, together for a very, very long time. I, I, funnily enough, I would completely agree with that. And I've never really thought about that before. But of all the large sort of um, collaborations between composer and director, the one that I think works most when you're talking about films from outside of that relationship and inside, the Silvestri and uh, Zemeckis works best because I think probably some of his best scores are in, in that um, Zemeckis um bracket aren't they um whereas you couldn't necessarily say the same about williams because all of his scores are, are pretty much yeah. um classics yeah <laughs> so so it's a yeah. bit different um yeah. but e- e- even now when you're looking at um some of the more recent scores that that patrick doyle's done for branner i mean I, I i guess the two most recent ones are murder on your express and death on the nile and both of those i think are great scores some people um wrote off um Death on the Nile a little bit, or I heard some slightly negative comments, and I didn't didn't quite agree with that. I thought it was uh, I thought it was a great score, and um, as I say, it's a shame, in my opinion, he doesn't get more work because he he can write good scores. Yeah, I mean, there was a point where he was he was almost he was working a lot. He was creating two three scores a year, and um, now it's kind of tailed off. And I mean, if he continues to work with Brana from the rest of his career, I think that's going to be much more fruitful than anything else. And it gives him a chance to, to work with one of his, uh, one of his longtime friends. So, um, yeah, I mean, Doyle's type of music is, is something that is kind of going out of fashion and you're not going to see a lot of young directors, you know, picking up on someone like Patrick Doyle to write scores. So if Brana is there for him, then I'm okay with that. I, th- I think it is always nice when occasionally a score comes out from him or he's, you know, signed on to a project. And you think, 
excellent. Like when he did the score to Brave, for instance, I was like, great move. And the score's great. But but the fact that Disney went and sought a Scottish composer out and and um, and it turned out to be him and it, it was that film and it was a good score, perfect. You know, so so it, it is nice when he, he does get some, some other stuff. And, and just, I suppose, before we actually listen to the track, um, there's a very nice CD which I couldn't find. I know I've got it somewhere. You've probably got it as well, which is his music for solo piano performed by him. I think it came out maybe four or five years ago, but that's a lovely album if, if anyone hasn't got it. I, I can't remember what it's called, but um, yeah. Yeah, there's another one, and um, it's um, a very simple album called Impressions of America. And I remember reading reviews of it and everybody calling it just the simplest thing you've ever heard. The orchestrations are just overly simple. So are the melodies. But what, what many people didn't realize is that was done on purpose. Now, one, this album is essentially Patrick Doyle's musical vision of what he feels like America sounds like. So whenever he's in the United States, you know, he's traveled along and been all over the place. And musically, this is what significant places in the United States sound like, like, you know, Yosemite, Death Valley, or even um, significant moments in American history, like the Great Depression, or celebrations throughout the year, like Thanksgiving. Now, the whole point of this album, and I really do think it's lovely, is that it is kind of dumbed down because it's actually written for high school bands. So... What he wants to do is he wants, you know, the, the, the young musicians to play this stuff. And that's who it is written for. As much as he got a professional orchestra to play it on the album, this stuff is supposed to be played by high school bands. So making it just a little bit easier for just the everyday high school band. And I'm not talking about the ones that go out in competition and, and whatnot, but just to play something that's nice and, and again, probably geared towards more American um, high school bands than anything else. And they can play something that, they feel is expressing uh, their home musically. So if anybody does get a chance to pick it up and they find that it's just an, an, an overly easy composition, just soak it all in. It is easy. It is very simple, but it's absolutely lovely. Yeah, and music doesn't have to be complicated to be beautiful or enjoyable, does it? Uh, and I agree. I agree completely. I mean, sometimes the simplest melody or the simplest orchestration or just, you know, a small six piece band can can blow me out of the water um, than any other 90 piece orchestral piece that that maybe I've heard. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but you can still have something like, you know, the love theme from from the film Monster written by BT, which I think is one of the great love themes of all time. But it's just a very simple piano motif with um, some drums and strung, strumming uh, guitars and synthesizers. But I think it's absolutely lovely, one, because it fits the picture and it fix, fits the, the atmosphere of that film, but it just reaches deep into my heart and makes me feel the way that something like a big love theme like Superman can do to me. So, yeah, you're right. It, everything doesn't have to be large orchestra. It's just that if you can capture that feeling, no matter how you do it, then, you know, you're, you're actually being successful at writing film music or music in general. Yeah, yeah, completely agree with that. Yep. 
All right. So we'll move on from, from Patrick Doyle. Um, <laughs> but it was a great chat. And I, I think we explored some interesting ideas. So here's your favorite track from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein by Patrick Doyle. This is the track to think of a story, the opening cue from the film. Canada, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, and you're listening to the flagship show with Eric Woods. Okay, we're back, and now we're going to move on to 
Oh boy, could you say this is one of the greatest scores, uh, documentary scores, ever written? Yes, and okay. I don't need to even think about that. Okay, good. We're on the same page. So um, I, 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 I want to say that I, that the entire audience listening, I'm sure, is familiar with uh, the Blue Planet, which is, I think, also one of the greatest uh, documentary series of all time. Um, I think this came out for the first time, maybe 20, 21 years ago, 2001, 2001. So I saw it and I was, it's one of those ones where it's like, how in the world did they get those shots? And, you know, me working in the, the video industry and being an editor myself, I'm, it just humbles you as someone who does something similar. Now I, I'm not a nature photographer, but Man, if I can go back and do it again, it's either I would get into sound mixing, sound effects, editing, uh, sound design, or I would try to get into nature photography because I think it's some of the most beautiful, natural, organic material that anybody can capture on film. And I mean, I think there's a whole pile of different, uh, is there like a sequel to Blue Planet? Is there not? And there's other sequel or offshoot documentaries as well. Um, Is that correct? Yes. Um, like Frozen we Planet can, or... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so, so there's a whole load of um, of these BBC documentaries that are um, primarily, a lot of them from a particular period, were scored by George Fenton. And uh, we just talked before we, we came back from <laughs> that track. I mean, if there's anybody... I mean, there's a pile of composers I would love to work on Star Wars. But if <laughs> George Fenton, I think, is one of the most... Um, underrated composers and we, we we've brought that up a bunch of times like you know underrated composers by my holy god george fenton man can this guy write for orchestra and he's written some splendid scores and if you know you haven't explored george fenton's work i highly recommend you do but blue planet might very well be one of the best things he's ever put together I would, uh, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And, and it's one of those um, scores probably that lots of people know, which again is quite a good thing. Uh, I've no idea what the viewing figures were, but at the time this was kind of groundbreaking. So I don't know, um, uh, I don't know what um, it was like with, with you, but certainly here in the, in the UK, the BBC have always done, ever since I can remember, always done documentaries, you know, nature documentaries and stuff. And I love the outdoors, I love nature and wildlife and, and all of that kind of stuff. And it was it was something that, you know, we always watched growing up. And, and even now, my wife and I will watch some, um, my kids, you know, love animals and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, they're, all, they're, they're always things that, that I'll watch. And, um, and as we sort of said there, there were um, a number of these, probably from around the mid to late nineties through to the maybe 2010, 2011, where, where they did a number of very big, presumably very expensive documentaries. And, and they were all scored by George Fenton. And he started, um, there were two prior to Blue Planet. He started with The Trials of Life and then he did Life in the Freezer. So um, there's a series of, um, uh, documentaries all narrated by or presented and narrated by um, Sir, David, Sir David Attenborough and they were all pretty much life so it's the life of birds the life of mammals the trials of life life in the freezer blah 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 um, and, and so it was looking at different aspects of, of nature 
and then sort of towards i guess probably towards the end of that run they then decided to look at the um look at the ocean and the sea um and what life was like under there and and they came up with this which um was filmed over five years so it took a long time to film and and, and obviously as you've said some of the stuff they filmed is um for the first time some of the some of the creatures they filmed was were filmed for the first time and 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 the footage and the way they filmed it was um much better than than anything they'd ever done i don't because i was trying to look this up i don't remember um but obviously for some reason the bbc decided to to put more money into this kind of thing uh, and I don't really know why, because the documentaries were always, you know, relatively good and, and they gave an interesting view of, of nature and wildlife. But then for some reason, on, on when they hit Blue Planet, they decided, you know, they were kind of going to go a bit harder at it. And, and, and that goes um, for the score as well, because the Trials of Life and Life in the Freezer, although composed by Fenton, were primarily synthesized scores. Um, whereas Blue Planet, he was then given, I guess, the opportunity or more money um, to record um, with the BBC Concert Orchestra and, and the whole thing's pretty much orchestral, I think, with, with a few sort of um, electronic bits um, here and there. Um, and it won him an Emmy and a BAFTA um, for a, a couple of particular episodes. But I, I just think it's an absolute knockout score um and it's um one that that even now will <clears throat> will easily live on outside of outside of the the footage because um the score is just so great and, and and when we listen to this particular track if if you didn't know it was for a nature documentary you'd probably think it was for a hollywood blockbuster because the music is so good you know you've got uh, obviously the, the the track starts with this kind of quieter sort of um almost lush romantic um score and then probably halfway through it it then sort of catapults into something a lot heavier and but but the interesting thing about that um i, I was thinking about this when i listened to the track again when when you notice it it, it changes into something a bit more dramatic um you get sort of um you know ostinatos and that kind of thing but you don't get the the heavy percussion or the continuous percussion that you might get now people seem to think that as soon as you want to uh, ramp up the 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 sort of tension or or you know something action orientated might be happening on screen suddenly we'll pump drums underneath everything and then that gets gets everything moving you don't need to do that you can accent things with snares and cymbals and timps but but you don't have to have you know hi-hats or, or or drums just banging away so so it's interesting in this track that what you get is is something that all of a sudden propels you forward but but it does it pretty much just with the orchestra you don't get anything else um it's uh yeah it's a it's a lovely score and it's one that unfortunately i haven't seen live but i know that he has done several concerts of this live with with footage um and um and it's just yeah just a fantastic score and i i think of all of these kind of nature documentaries it's it's my wife's favorite um and and it's she finds um david attenborough's voice 
um, relaxing and and can to a certain extent put her to sleep. So often, <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but often she'll wake up in the night and maybe struggle to get back to sleep and she'll put Blue Planet on and then she'll be able to fall asleep. And it's so funny because Saturday night, I woke up in the night and guess what was on? Blue Planet. <laughs> and she was fast asleep. That's and I just fantastic. thought it's, it's just typical. You know, that that's that's just um that's just the way it is but um <laughs> yeah there you go a little a little bit of what goes on behind the curtains oh that, um, I mean, that's lovely <laughs> yeah but but uh, you know uh, as you said there it, it was a fantastic show and it still is now and yes to a certain extent some of the more recent shows they've they've been able to do with the BBC maybe technically now even look better than this um, because it, it, it does in part maybe look a bit dated now but I, I think this was the 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 forerunner for what everyone else has done and unfortunately you, you look at some of these other companies and they've kind of picked up on it so you get Netflix doing um, I think it was One Planet or something and, and um, uh, Apple TV have just done is it Prehistoric Planet or something so they're all kind of picking up on this same thing I suppose the only good thing is that lots of these do have pretty good scores because they will often get um, large Hollywood often named composers. I think, I think, unfortunately, you mentioned um, there was a sequel to Blue Planet, Blue Planet 2, and, and the score for that, um, for me, is, is nowhere near as good as this. Unfortunately, it's, it's really popular because of who the composer was. Um, but but yeah, in in my opinion, this this stands out, and it stands out in 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 George Fenton's work, but it also stands out in in the sort of nature documentary um, music category um, as as just something, um, yeah, just uh, amazing music. As I say, I don't think if you just listen to this without knowing what it came from, I don't think you'd believe this came from just a nature documentary. Um, yeah, and I and I would have to agree with you, and I'm just kind of looking through um, a little bit of information about this series, and I'm just again trying to think of what led up to this, and and the reason why they kind of went so big, and I'm wondering, and I'm wondering if this was planned beforehand that there was a theatrical version of this documentary released a few years later which I think was called Deep Blue. and It, it was, used, yeah, I think in 2003, yeah. And Fenton scored that now, but I'm again, I'm not 100% familiar with this, but did he just adapt his music from Blue Planet into Deep Blue? Yes, I have a feeling somewhere I actually have the soundtrack for Deep Blue as well, mm -hmm. um, but I think it is just a a rearranging of the same music okay. just, just to fit the, the one feature film effectively. So that's where I'm thinking that, you know, the budget goes up, they, they're going to put this on TV, but they're also going to release this theatrically. And I don't remember back in 2001 where I would have seen this show and whether there was that many channels like we have now um, and whether there was a, a BBC Canada or not. So I, I know I saw this documentary years later. Again, still very impressed by it. So that's probably what happened is that there, and again, I'm just making this up uh without really knowing what the what the plans were but i think it's just that they're going to make this as theatrical as possible 
and and because it's going to go into theaters a few years later after its debut on on the BBC and and you're right i mean it is an incredibly popular score and we talk about all these um live in concert tours that that happen now or these you know films that we are seeing um performed live to orchestra all around the world and back in 2018 I think this is when George Fenton kind of went on the road with the series. And then later on, other orchestras were picking it up and playing the score to the visuals. So it's an incredibly popular score around the world. And, um, but I think that the, yeah, the reason why George Fenton was brought in was kind of to give it that movie sound, that theatrical sound. But, you know, someone like Elmer Bernstein, I think even Lee Holdridge at the time, they were working with National Geographic and providing large-scale scores for, for their documentaries as well. But, I mean, I think when it comes down to that that kind of big sound, that big kind of classic orchestral sound, um, and I'm, again, I'm not 100% familiar with documentary scores, but this one is is probably one of the best and, and more popular scores that uh, has ever been written for a documentary series. Yes, yeah, definitely, and and it was interesting as well. Something I I, I wanted to mention. There was a, a series on on the radio maybe three or four years ago with um, Tony Hatch, who people might remember did a lot of sort of TV stuff in the sixties, I think fifties and sixties, um, and and wrote songs and stuff. And he did a, a show about um, television music, effectively. And one of the people he interviewed on the show was George Fenton, and he sort of asked him the question about how he. He wrote so much music for for all of this wildlife, and 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 Fenton referred to a quote from Jerry Goldsmith, and and he basically said, you know, there's no way I could have scored every animal with a theme, and 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 he, if if I'm correctly remembering the the quote, he he quoted Jerry Goldsmith and said, Goldsmith had said, if you're scoring a scene for a man on a horse that's going away, you don't score the the horse going away you score the fear of the rider and and so it's it's looking at the bigger picture and yes you might have a you know a, a, a turtle swimming in the sea but is that is that what you want do you want to score that turtle swimming away or is there a shark chasing it and you want kind of something um to give you that feeling of of what's happening on screen so so it, it was interesting to hear hear him talk about that and and the fact that it's not just straightforward you know, a shark has a theme, a turtle has a theme, a jellyfish has a theme, because it, it just doesn't work like that. It almost seems like, to me, with these types of documentaries and the way that they produce them, and the, even the way that they narrate them, um, that even the music and sometimes the sound effects and, and, and whatnot uh, gives these animals um, human characteristics and almost human emotions so we are able to, as an audience, really feel for these animals. So, I mean, if you just saw, um, you know, like a, a seal getting chased by a group of killer whales, I mean, that might seem like it's, it's, uh, it's somewhat scary and dangerous. But then you can really, you know, ramp up that tension and how the seal is feeling by scoring it one way. Or you might think that, okay, this... Well, I don't know if they're called schools, but this group of, you know, killer whales, they're hungry. They haven't eaten forever and they've got a baby in tow that they got to feed as well. So, I mean, do you, what, what, what's the point of view? And it's amazing how you can manipulate the emotions 
and you can score it two, three different ways. And I think that's what makes these scores and these type of nature documentaries so very successful because one, yeah, they do feel theatrical, but it's also that, that human emotion, even though we're watching animals, we can feel for them because of what the music and the narration is telling us. But I think it, it kind of um, points you in a direction of where you want to feel. So I guess there must be dialogue between, you know, the, the producers and, and the composer. Yeah. It's the same with not to, not to keep going back to, to Williams, but it's the same with Jaws. If you take the music out of Jaws, the shark doing what it's doing isn't anywhere near as scary. Right. Um, and, and, and it's the same with, with Blue Planet, that the music helps give the scene emotion. So it will almost, I guess, pick a side. Like you've said there, if penguins are being attacked by orcas or killer whales, then you're probably going to side with the penguin and not the orcas. And, and then the music is going to reflect that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's what's the most fascinating part about this is because you could you can sort of make up your own story in 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 some part by taking you're right the side of um, maybe of the per, of the the thing that is in danger. But I've seen other stories where if you're telling the story from the point of view of maybe the predator, um, then you're going to score it completely different, and you're going to tell a different type of story, and you're going to inject different type of feelings. But I think that's what's so great about this is that you can really discuss it, talk about it and sort of manipulate it the way that you want. But that's what I love about these type of documentaries. It just it, it does have that theatrical feel, and I think that's what makes it really, uh, really work. Yeah, and I think you can even take it further. I, I haven't seen it, um, I don't suppose you have, but um, I remember hearing an interview with uh, Harry Gregson-Williams, and he's done some documentaries for Disney. And there was one, I think, back end of last year about a polar bear, and, and when he talked about that, um, he said Disney effectively filmed all of this stuff in the wild, but they put it together like it was a movie with a story. So it has a very distinctive narrative. And then his music is is almost exactly that. It's cin cinematic music. It's, it's following the story of this polar bear. Whereas Blue Planet doesn't quite do that. It, you know, it, it does have stories, but it's not a story about you know a polar bear family or a polar bear cub or whatever this this particular film was for disney but um yeah yeah it's like uh, march of the penguins was like one of the first ones where i remember watching it and you're like yes. telling the story of a family yeah. of penguins and you're following them along and and feeling you know their emotions when you know a new baby's born or when a new baby is lost or whatever or how cold it is and things of that sort so yeah i just it and i also i mean i think documentary scoring is incredibly uh, it's fascinating. Um, Pano Altio is doing, I think, some of the best work in documentaries uh, for those uh, finished documentaries, um, the Tale of series that he's he's worked on, and all three of them are are absolutely spectacular. And um, Nanita Desai is doing some great work as well. Um, I think it was Untamed Romania. She wrote an incredible score a few years ago, and if um, Anybody wants to check those out, I uh, highly recommend it. But yeah, documentary scores. I don't think documentary scores get the respect that they deserve. So I'm glad that you brought uh, Blue Planet uh, with you uh, on the show today. So this is the fourth track on the album. Oh, it's a spectacular track too called Blue Whale, music composed by George Fenton.
Up next, we're going to feature some video game music from the great Bear McCreary. Uh, this was um, one of my favorite video game scores uh, when it was released. And can you remind me what year it was? Do you remember? Yeah, um, I know it was 2018 okay. um, because it's uh, the most recent score in in this whole playlist. And okay. it's still yeah. like four or five years old. You're right. Yeah. And, and it was it's it's magnificent. It's uh, it's Bear McCreary just in. Uh, just full on beast mode. It's just a massive score. But again, I like that you picked this cue. And actually, this isn't one of the cues that I added on to my suite when I played it on the show. But it is a beautiful choral piece. And, you know, for a game that is um, kind of ultra-violent and a lot of big, heavy music, um, this track called The Ninth Realm is is quite different from the rest of the score, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned the word choral there, because I wanted specifically to talk about choral music, which I will do in a second. But, but first, um, I wanted to... Um, give a bit of thanks to both um, Eric Silver and Jay Blake Fischera because they have shows on your network that primarily play music that I don't always listen to um, because I'm not big on horror and I'm not really a gamer. I I, I gamed when I was younger, but I, I don't have time. You know, I'm, I don't game anymore. So, so listening to those shows often gives me... Um, great pleasure because I'm hearing music that, that I may not have heard otherwise. So, um, and, and we'd already heard a piece of TV music. We've heard lots of film music and I thought it's about time we heard some, some music from video game. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat that you are. I, I don't game at all. 
um, when I was young, I had a handful of games that I enjoyed. And then kind of when I got older, I played maybe one game and it was the NHL series from EA and that was about it. And then I just kind of stopped playing. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I didn't understand why someone would sit there for 18, 19, 20 hours trying to get through a game. But now that I've seen gameplay and I have to see gameplay, because if I listen to a score that is from a video game that I like, I want to hear what it, what it's doing in context to make sure that, yeah, I like the music, but I also like the way it's being applied um, in the game. So that's the only way that I experience video games. And, and look, I, I'm not going to, I'm not crapping on the, the genre because I think it is an absolute um, wonderful art form and, and the technology that is being employed into video games and, and how much um, more real that these games are getting. I'm just absolutely blown away from the days of me playing, you know, Super Mario Brothers 3 on the Nintendo and now you're like in these fully immersed 3D worlds that are just spectacular and you're being able, <laughs> you're able to play with people all over the world. It just blows my mind. It's just it's yeah. just too much for me to to get to get into, but I appreciate it. And yes. I love that I love the evolution of game music as well. And I think um, you know, to get to this point where you've got massive orchestras and massive choirs and it all sounds incredible in the game too and and the way that they can manipulate the music to to match a, a a story beat based on the way the the player is playing the game, the technology is unreal. And I find that any composer that's working in video games, they are a special breed of composer because the way that they handle uh, the storytelling is unreal. It's 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 just a whole other way of thinking of writing music compared to film and television. So I love the music that comes out of this genre. Or medium. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same in that if if I hear a score that I really like for a video game, often I might pop onto YouTube and watch maybe half an hour's worth of, of gameplay. There's plenty of people out there, you know, who do YouTubes of them playing video games. It's, it's apparently a popular thing. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't game, but, but I see it from, from that angle. Um, I knew that when I was putting together the playlist, I knew that I really wanted to play uh, some Bear McCreary. Um, he's of of the current crop of composers that's working regularly across all different mediums. He's he's probably one of my favourites, and he's certainly someone that whenever he does a new score, I'm pretty much guaranteed to like it. Um, he he always his scores are always based in some part on on the orchestra, and when you hear him talk about you know his relationship with Elmer Bernstein and, and, and growing up and all of that kind of stuff. He clearly likes classic film scores, but he also has a, a, a way of working that into a modern setting. So you think of something like um, the the King Kong score he did, um, or even the, the Master of Universe, the, the Netflix series. You know, they're clearly modern scores, but when you listen to actually what the orchestra's doing, it's very much firmly placed in traditional scoring um and 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 he's just a fantastic composer and i remember the first time because originally i thought um i'll play a piece from of course Battlestar galactica because i remember sitting down the first time um that was shown here in the uk whenever it was early 2000s it was you know uh, a ronald d moore show and i was kind of like well you know there's not star trek at the moment and he did star trek so i'm sure it's going to be good and, and, you know, that, that series and the music blew me away. And um, I can't remember whether that was the first sort of real thing that McCreary did, 
but certainly that was the first time I'd come across him. Um, and from then on, pretty much, it's been like, like I said, every, everything he does, I've, I've pretty much enjoyed. And so <clears throat> when I thought, well, that, that feels to me a little bit obvious to play something from Battlestar Galactica, although there's so many albums, so I could have picked a track that maybe doesn't get played a lot. I thought about what other um, soundtracks of his I listened to sort of regularly and immediately came upon this one. Um, and, and it fit, uh, as, as I say, it fit because I hadn't played any video game music. I thought, perfect, I can play a track from this. And, and this is one of the, the top scores that, that I listen to regularly from McCreary. And I think, um, as I say, not being a gamer, I think this music 100% sits on, it own, sits on its own. Uh, but probably a bit like most of the other music we've listened to, you know, same as what we said with Blue Planet. You, you could just put Blue Planet on and enjoy it. I could do exactly the same with this, um, this soundtrack. And, and it's just wonderful um, to, to listen to the, the, the main theme, which, and, and, and part of the reason I chose this particular track is it, it kind of is a very good track to get an idea of what the whole score is like. So you get the main theme, you get the, the solo soprano, you get the different choirs and you get the orchestra. And, it, and it's kind of a good representation of w what the score as a whole is like in, 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 uh, across the whole um, sort of CD. And um, you mentioned choral music right at the start. And I think so often uh, choir can be used as almost a colour or a texture. So people will talk about building layers of sound, and you know, the, the, the strings are at this level and then you've got the brass on top and maybe the woodwind sitting between. But then they might talk about choir as sitting somewhere in the background to give a sort of a, just a sound like, all you might get is sort of oohs or ahs and, and that's all it is. And to me, it feels a little bit boring just to do that with a choir and just have it sat there just to add a bit of textural color that that to me doesn't doesn't quite work um the way it, it's used quite often but on on this he um does a couple of good things first of all he um actually has um the choir singing in old norse so rather than because if, if you're not doing sort of oohs and ahs lots of the time um, a choir singing Latin, um, whereas on, on this he felt, no, I'm, I'm going to go and use actual old Norse, which is, you know, presumably the language that, that they would have sung in at the time, um, had they done singing. And, and he uses three different choirs. So um, he uses a choir from Iceland. Sorry from uh, anyone listening from Iceland. The scholar cantorum choir um and they have um as i understand it they have um quite deep voices and then he uses a, a choir from uh the uk the london voices and then he also uses the city of prague philharmonic choir and then there's the orchestra as well so he's using these three different um choirs to to pull together this choral sound but then on top of that you get, as I say, this featured vocalist, the, the soprano, I think she is, um, Ivor. And, and it's interesting for anyone that might have watched the Viking TV series, The Last Kingdom, which is on um, 
Netflix and was on the BBC here. That music is composed by John Lunn, who people know from Down Abbey, but the female vocalist on that series is the same lady, Ivor, that is featured on this. So clearly she's a specialist in, in singing Viking music, um, <laughs> whatever that is. But um, the, the combination of all of that together just, just makes for, a, for an absolute knockout score and I'm very pleased that um, there's a sequel, God of War Ragnarok, which was due out last year, but apparently is now due out this year. And we're getting more music from Bear McCreary. So um, for anyone that does enjoy this, there's a sequel. Well, that's news to me. And that is superb because you're right. Anytime I, I see a project with Bear McCreary's name on it, I'm always intrigued. I'm not going to say I like everything that he does, but I like most of the stuff that he does. And you know, you're talking about Battlestar Galactica, and, and I think that's where most of the world was first introduced to to him and his music because I think at that time he was working under uh, Richard Gibbs, who scored the the pilot episodes of the new Battlestar Galactica, and decided not to uh, come back for the series, and so Bear McCreary got it, and you know. Uh, when I first heard that type of music employed in the series, I mean, it, it didn't meet my expectations because I, you know, I, I knew what the the old Battlestar Galactica scores sound like. There was that John Williams space opera sound. So, you know, I'm hearing, you know, Tycho drums and 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 odd instrumentations, and it's 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 not what I expected. I was kind of turned off, but then I finally saw the series. I think just before it ended, um, we had. Well, at the time when you could rent uh, DVDs at Blockbuster when that was still around. And so my wife and I watched it and we just fell in love with it. And then, then, okay, then I finally got the music and someone had sent me also the track. um, um, Oh, what is it? The, it's not the Escape from New Caprica, but anyway, there's this massive action track, I think from season three. And it is, it is one of the most incredible things I've ever heard. And that's when my mind changed and I realized what, what um what McCreary is doing and then of course seeing it in context um it's probably one of the best things he's he's ever done but I just love that he's able to write in any style that you could ask him to do but he's not like a, a John Debney who is a musical chameleon but you can't really you can sort of pick on some of the things that he does but he doesn't really have that kind of distinct style but when he writes in an orchestra you know for orchestra you could sort of get oh yeah that's a debney score but he can write it all types of music and and that's fine i mean that that's great that he can do that and i think most more composers should think about doing that but i find that mccreary when he's writing in different types of styles there's just that element there that screams bear mccreary and so when he's working on something like Human Target, which I think was one of the biggest television scores ever written for sheer size of players, you know, he wanted to write that traditional action adventure score, but then wait, hold on a minute. There are those McCreary Tycho drums that are in there. And you're like, yeah, that's his, that's his calling card. And there's always something strange and weird um, introduced into his music, whether he is writing something traditional or whether he's writing something um, more modern. But there's always something there that screams McCreary. And I, but I also, like I said, I love the fact that he can just, just about do anything, and he's really strong at it. Um, like some of his earlier um, horror scores, it just they don't click for me. But you know, there's stuff like uh, Outlander, and you're right, the Godzilla movie that he did, I think, is one of the greatest things he's ever worked on. 
but there's also a respect for for previous themes from a television show or a film and I think he's absolutely remarkable him and his team uh, whatever they do and however they get the music out I it's just always if not top quality material yeah yeah I completely agree um a hundred percent and um you know, I'm 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 happy to say uh, Jason Akers, Omar Ben Zivi, and Sam Ewing also contributed as additional music on on this particular score. So so yeah, as you as you say, that the team that that do this is is um, is brilliant. And I think um, a couple of things. His his melodies for me. I, I I don't know whether you would think the same. But his melodies are always capturing you know you, you always remember them even now you know we're not listening to this piece of music but round in my head i've got that mm-hmm, you know I, I can hear the melody of this this piece of music because it, it is that you know it's that well written and, and and memorable but but then most of his scores are like that you know things like the theme to the walking dead most people will know that you know um and and i think for me as well he's He's the go-to for um, television scores and, and themes and stuff. If if I was ever going to create a, an American TV show, the first person I'd call before anyone else is Bear McCreary. I'd be saying, "Can you come and score this?" Because most of his scores for for TV, like you mentioned there, the um, uh, Human Target, um, obviously very successfully, he's, he's done Walking Dead. He did the Agents of Shield. Um, obviously, he did all of the the Battlestar, Battlestar Galactica, um, you know, loads of the the top scores in in TV recently have been been composed by him, but he he just doesn't limit himself to that because he'll then go and throw out um, video game scores like this, and then in the meantime he'll be doing you know actual Hollywood scores as well. So works very hard, but you know, for me, I think. You, you can hear the enjoyment, the enjoyment I get of, from listening to it. I imagine he gets putting into it. I remember him talking on the, the, the score, the podcast, I think, when he was talking about the, the Godzilla film, which I may have referred to as a King Kong film before. But anyway, right. <laughs> um, I, 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 I sort of vaguely remember him talking about um, how he'd gone back and listened to the original theme and he was doing arrangements of this and just the way he talks about music just gives you pleasure because you know that he's really enjoying what he's doing. Um, and that comes across because we enjoy listening to it. Absolutely. You, that's exactly right. I mean, when he talks about his music or the process of it, there is so much passion. And on top of that, I think for most of the projects that he's working on, um, he's always writing these massive essays on his website about the creation of the score or of a theme or whatever. And the fact that he takes time to do that and let his fans into the creative process, I think is absolutely amazing. And you get a better understanding of of who he is and, and what he is like and, and, and how he composes and I also find that he just is a super fan of melody and he also has a great gift for melody and, um, but he also has a great sense of the history of film music and knows when to bring in elements like, you know, the blaster beam for uh, 10 Cloverfield lane, which I thought was absolutely delightful. Um, or, you know, bring in other elements like a, like a Jerry Goldsmith would do. 
something unique that would make that score stand apart from from anything else. But he truly understands the power of film music or video game music or TV music, and I think he's just one of the the great um, the great talents uh, working in the game now. Yeah, and and I think like you said there as well, he he lets us into some of his process. Maybe not so much now. I, I'm not so sure, but certainly I remember um, several years ago he would do regular sort of vlogs i suppose on, on on youtube and and i forgot that this is another favorite of mine black sails the tv series about pirates and that theme with the hurdy-gurdy is so good and there's and there's a couple of videos about how he came up with some of the music um and and there's videos of him playing the hurdy-gurdy and stuff like that and i think um th there's a couple of other composers probably one we'll talk about in a, in a little bit but um, that are very good with um, sort of social media and, and, and YouTube and stuff. And it's fascinating to be able to, be able to see, you know, scoring or, um, uh, you know, the, the, the composers conducting the music as, as they're recording it or even just c sitting there and coming up with, with the music as you watch them. And I think he's, he's whether he was one of the first, I don't know, but he's one of the ones that, that always has very interesting um, stuff on his YouTube channel. So if, if anyone has never seen any of that and is interested in the process of scoring and, and writing music, then definitely go and, and check his uh, YouTube uh, channel out. Yeah, I think one of the best videos that he did, um, <laughs> he was working on uh, a track for The Walking Dead, and I think maybe it was like season two, so that's a really long time ago. But I was a um, a frequent um, contributor to the maintitles.net forum, um, one of the various message boards that are out there. And the um, they had um, what was like a main titles.net kazoo. So wherever they went, like the group of them, they would get together, whether it's in uh, Germany or Austria or, or in the UK, and they'd go to concerts, like this group of people out there. I think Alan Rogers was part of the group. And and so anyway, they had these kazoos with main titles.net on them, and they just happened to meet Bear McCreary, and they gave him one. And I don't think they thought anything of it, but then all of a sudden he has this YouTube video where he's talking about writing a, a specific cue for, for Walking Dead and how he always tries to find something that he can add into his scores that is unique, a unique sound or, or something that can, that can challenge him as a composer. And so he brings out this kazoo and I'm like, holy smokes, that's the main titles.net kazoo that he got. And I'm like, how in the world is he going to use a kazoo in The Walking Dead. And that was his challenge. So he played it, but of course he pitched it down and kind of created a drone out of it. But an interesting factoid is that there is a kazoo played in one of the cues in a horror score from The Walking Dead. So I thought that was always a, a an interesting story, but it just goes back to the fact that McCreary is always trying to uh, inject something special or fresh into his scores, but he also still has that mindset of a, a traditionalist as well and understands the power of, let's say, a a long line melody or great harmony, great orchestrations, or just the power of a of an orchestra. But he can still inject something weird in there to 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 add um, a little bit of spice to the scores, and and that's what I really like about him a lot. Mm, definitely and and he doesn't look maybe like 
a composer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is quite fun. You know, yeah, he's, he's a rock and um, roll star. <laughs> yeah, for anyone who's not seen him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Long hair and a beard. He just, uh, yeah, he, he doesn't scream uh, film composer, that's for sure. But uh, he writes <laughs> he writes incredible music, and this is uh, one of his best cues from the video game God of War. This is a, a beautiful choral track called The Ninth Realm.
great best music for film, TV and video games, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. All right, up next is uh, music from a score I've heard from a film I haven't seen. I really wasn't a fan of the first one, so I didn't feel like I needed to see the second one. But um, Brian Tyler's score, um, I think the first one was okay. But then when he came out with this track for Now You See Me Too, and I heard this fanfare right off the top, I was like, what in the world am I listening to? It is... It's a pretty traditional piece of symphonic music from Brian Tyler, which um, I don't think is is unique, but it was surprising to hear. And I mean, the rest of the score is pretty solid as well. Again, not sure how it works in the film. I have no interest in seeing it. But um, uh, tell me, Will, why uh, you brought this track along with you today. Uh, just be glad if you didn't like the first film, you didn't see the second film. <laughs> um <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but I, I will backtrack a little bit. But um, the first time I heard this particular track, the fanfare, was the opening piece from the second half of Brian Tyler's first concert at the Royal Festival Hall in London. And, and that's part of the reason I chose this track. Um, uh, he played it and it was the only new piece in the whole concert. Uh, and he played it because later on that year the film was coming out. So I, I guess it had all been scored and, and, and edited and all of that. So it was just a waiting release, effectively. Um, and like you said, it, it sort of stands out. And, and, and even now, you know, if someone said to me, and I, I'm quite a big fan of Brian Tyler. I think he's an interesting composer and, and does lots of quite, sometimes quite unique things. But... In a similar way, maybe to Ben McCreary, he does have an orchestra head on and he comes from a background of, you know, I think studying under Jerry Goldsmith. And so he understands the orchestra, but he's able to use that in sometimes uh, imaginative ways with electronics and drums and all of that kind of stuff. Having said that, this little fanfare from Now You See Me Too, which, by the way, doesn't actually appear in the film, disappointingly, um, is very much a sort of John Williams kind of track. You get the the bold sort of opening, and then you get the the sort of slower, lusher middle section with the strings, and then you get the 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 return of the theme at the end. It's almost like an A B A piece of music. And the first time I heard it, it was it struck me as as that. It struck me as a John Williams style fanfare, um, but it is. A, a brilliant little piece um and and it's odd because it stands out from the rest of the score because the rest of the score is quite sort of jazzy and funky um in a sort of a a modern day sort of 70s style so it sort of wants to be like a Lalo Schifrin score from the 70s but done in a modern style and 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 for me it works but this this particular track is just amazing and and i think if i were to pick one track only from brian tyler to say go and listen to this and tell me you don't like this i i would pick this track because who's not going to like this um and it's it's interesting because the first so um the first film i saw at the cinema and the second film actually i didn't um but i have seen it and as i say it's certainly not a patch on the first i quite enjoyed the first but it was um, 
there was this thing they did at the the local cinema chain that I've got in in town here where they they I don't know whether they still do it but they used to do this thing I think it was on a monthly basis where you'd book a ticket but you wouldn't know what you were going to see it was done on a monday night and it was like a I forget what they called it like a secret cinema thing and and my guess was the chain wanted to try and plug a film that they thought maybe could do better if people actually started seeing it without knowing what it was that that was i guess my idea um and and so um one of those films i saw was now you see me and so you know i went in with i think i went with a bunch of guys from work and we went in sat down and and you'll always get a few people who as soon as the film starts and it's not what they think it's going to be they'll walk out and i think i'm trying to remember what it was i think maybe there was a massive marvel film coming out at the same sort of time or something like that you know there was a big film and people half hoped it might be that and of course it wasn't and then you get a couple of people walk out straight away um but that was the first time I'd, i saw the first film i didn't i i'd not heard of the film i don't think and and i certainly didn't know it was a brian tyler film um and then the film starts and the music's really really quite good and and i enjoyed the film you know i i find magic and that kind of thing quite fascinating and, and the story was quite entertaining there's some good good acting in it um and and i really enjoyed the score and then when um <clears throat> when it came out that they were doing a sequel and, and brian tyler was coming back you know it was great and actually i think the presentation on the first album for the first film is poor if i remember correctly there's only maybe six or seven tracks it's quite a short album and yet the second um film there's a massive 70 minute cd isn't there i think including tracks like this which doesn't even appear in the film um so um yeah i i wanted to play this and and that that moment of watching this live was was brilliant but it was it was a moment I'll remember. The whole concert was was an evening I'll remember because I took my wife. Um, I think I'm trying to remember this. This was probably before we had kids, um, and um, you know, going down to London is quite fun. You know, we'll, we'll go down, have dinner, and then go and do something. And um, there have been a number of occasions in our relationship where effectively I've bought tickets for something and not told her and then said, oh, by the way, we're going to do this on this day, probably because I know she wouldn't be interested. Um, but, you know, I can swing it by saying, oh, we'll go to this restaurant, we'll have a nice dinner and then we can go and do this, blah, blah, blah. And so I bought tickets. Um, I bought tickets for this Brian Tyler concert because it was kind of like a, a, a must have for me you know it was the first concert he was doing solely of his own music he was conducting it it was the oh, i haven't got it written down actually i think it was the lso um but you know and and it was at the world festival hall again which at that time i hadn't been to and and i thought yeah i'm going to snap tickets up so i got a pair of tickets and then it was only afterwards i, I said to my wife oh by the way on on this day we're coming down to london and we're going to see this um and i didn't realize so growing up i was always surrounded by music obviously we talked about I, I, I played music and um i played in in orchestras and stuff and i'd seen orchestras playing myself as as a as a fan and i hadn't realized um my wife hadn't done that and i, I suppose i was used to what what i grew up with and not what she'd grown up with and so we sit down and you know the the all of the instruments are there and then the the, the the orchestra walks on and conductor comes on and they play the first track and I think it was the theme from Thor the Dark World um 
And after that finished and there was a round of applause, she leaned over to me and she was like, this is amazing. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. And she was like, I've never seen this kind of thing before. And, and I hadn't realised that. I suppose I was naive or stupid. But um, as I say, I'd, I'd grown up around that. She hadn't. And, um, and she was blown away by the whole concert. Um, and she, she loved it. Um, and I think it helped as well that um, I don't know why, but apparently Brian Tyler looks quite nice as well. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's a handsome fella, that's for sure. I mean, he's um, what like fifty yeah. years old now, and he still looks like he's twenty five. <laughs> <He's, laughs> yes. Well, I mean, he also he also lives a double life, right? So he's a DJ, so he has to. Yeah. I mean, he knows how to dress. He knows how to look good. He, he knows he knows what kind of cars to drive in and and where to. The best places to stay. So yeah, he's uh he's definitely living it up. <laughs> definitely, yeah. But he's a he, he's he's another interesting um person to listen to talk, and his YouTube channel, a bit like Bear McCreary's, is interesting. Um, th th there's lots of good videos on there of, of him both conducting, writing, but also him playing because he plays lots of stuff. Obviously, he's he's pretty much known for for playing drums because lots of his scores have drums in. Um, and, and there was one track, I'm trying to remember, I think it was music from, you might have to help me out, the video game. Did he do one of the, the it was a war game. Um... I, for, I forget, there's a series of, of war video games and God of, no. Uh, no, oh, Call I, of I Duty. It's, it's gone. Call of Duty. Call of Duty I think he did Warfare. Call of Duty Modern Warfare, yes. And and they they played a track from that, and he um, left the podium and went and played drums on that track. And that was the only track he played drums on for the evening. Otherwise, he was conducting. Um, but but yeah, he's uh, yeah a very interesting person to listen to and 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 watch interview. Uh, and um, he he obviously has a love for for classic film scores. Um, you know, when you listen to him talk, he will talk about that kind of thing. And there was one track in the evening that wasn't his, um, and he played the main theme from Superman. Um, and, and he sort of talked about how how much of an impression John Williams made on him and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So um, it was a it was a fantastic evening, um, really went down well. Um, and the music, you know, as I said, I enjoy Brian Tyler's scores, maybe some more than others. Sometimes it can go a bit too heavy on the um, on the electronics for me and there's some that don't don't quite hit the mark but but when he's on song um a perfect example earlier this year there was a score called redeeming love uh and i know i've mentioned it a number of times on twitter but it is an absolutely gorgeous score and it's just mainly orchestral um has hints of vaughan williams and stuff and it's absolutely beautiful um so so yeah sometimes you really really hits hits it for me and sometimes not quite so much but but that's fine um uh yeah yeah there's about uh two eras of brian tyler's music that i really really like and the first one first era was when he started and i remember hearing um six string samurai for the first time and going well, all right this is uh this is pretty interesting and then all of a sudden um, he got really, really big. Um, 
just after, just before he got big, he did Bubba Hotep, which I thought was an interesting score too. But then all of a sudden, you know, Children of Doom pops up and then Darkness Falls pops up and The Hunted. And he was doing these one after another. Did a episode of Star Trek Enterprise and then he gets kind of his big, big break um, scoring Timeline, um, which replaced Jerry Goldsmith's score. Now, that film obviously didn't do as well as I think he hoped, but I mean, that that kind of made a name for himself that he was so young. And I think um, uh, having worked on, on the hunted was, was um, Oh God, the director's name, uh, William Friedkin. I think that helped him then, uh, you know, establish his name and, and, and get jobs like um, timeline and the final cut. But then it was after that where I just really wasn't falling in love with his music. And sometimes that temp track would really kick in. Like there's one piece that he wrote that sounds exactly like legends of the fall. And then I kind of wrote him off until about 2013. And that's when he wrote Iron Man three. And that's when that kind of John Williams esque orchestra really came out. And he wasn't doing sort of the same type of action music that he was doing that all sounded like it came from darkness falls and the hunted. It all had a very similar rhythm to it. And from about 2013 to maybe 2017, I think it was just when he did The Mummy, that period right there was a, it was a second era of Tyler's music that I just absolutely lapped up. I thought it was fantastic. And he was just having a great career revival at that time, too, because he was working with Marvel. And But then something happened on Age of Ultron, and then just all of a sudden he sort of disappeared, although he had some success with uh, crazy rich Asians. But that five-year period in the kind of mid-2000s or the 2010s was a remarkable period for him, and it was one that I, I, I kind of re-fell in love with his music, especially Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Holy smoke, is that score absolutely bananas. It is just absolutely insane. And so, but yeah, you're right. This now you see me too fanfare. Holy cow! I mean, you you the sophistication in the orchestration is quite remarkable. And so I don't. I'm not sure what happened during this time period and and, and where the kind of style changed and and what he employed or what he did. But it was a great time to be a Brian Tyler fan. I think, funny enough, you you said exactly how I feel. I think his early music is is a hundred percent um up there with with some of the best stuff he's done and his more recent stuff certainly as you say probably from around whenever iron man came out so onwards some great stuff but there's a period in the 20 in the mid 2000s probably that's just score after score of pretty much similar stuff things like eagle eye and 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 uh, law-abiding citizen and that kind of stuff you know and and occasionally there's the odd track on there or the theme might be you know worth a listen but apart from that no thanks but um but then something happened i don't know whether it was you know him getting marvel films and and suddenly that being a bit more of a kick up the rear end to to do something a bit more or whether he started working on films maybe he liked more i i have no idea but you you mentioned the mummy there which by the way for anyone who hasn't heard it is brilliant and there is a fantastic end title piece it's about 10 minutes isn't it um on 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 the, on the cd which is brilliant but at the time this concert um was put on he had just signed up for the mummy 
And so I only found this out afterwards because there was a, a photo he posted, I think, on his Twitter account. And um, Tom Cruise had been in the audience. Oh, really? Yeah, because he'd he'd obviously learnt that this guy was scoring his film, and I guess I don't know. You know what Tom Cruise is? I right. thought, well, I, I don't really know this guy, so I want to come along and find out how good he really is. Uh-huh. You know, um, and yeah, he was in the audience, and and there's a photo somewhere online. You'll find it of of Brian Tyler and and Tom Cruise after the concert. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. There's as I said, there, there's lots of really good scores from him. There's some that are just fairly ordinary and and honestly there's a couple for me that yeah just just don't do it i think it was a bad film as well there was a film a little while ago with kevin costner something about him being a spy and he lost his mind or something i forget what it's called but but the score for that is pretty much all electronic stuff and it's just yeah not my cup of tea (laughs) yeah and i think some composers go through highs and lows and things of that sort so you know hopefully he i mean yeah i mean people are really enjoying um uh, the the Yellowstone scores that he's uh, that he's oh, writing, yes. So they um, are they are lovely. They yeah. are, and so uh, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't really been keeping um, close attention to his work since about 2018. There's just so much that comes in, and sometimes I'll like peruse a score of his, and it just if it doesn't really grab me, then I'm 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 not going to invest my time in there. But but you know, there are some incredible. Uh, works that he has done, and um, and this is one of them. Um, I think now you see me to fanfare might be one of the top five pieces uh, he's ever he's ever done. So um, have a listen to this, folks, and uh, let's see if you uh, if you agree if this is one of the greatest pieces that he's ever written. This is Brian Tyler again from the film Now You See Me Too. This is the fanfare.
All right, up next from uh, Rene Aubrey. Uh, this is a composer I am not familiar with. Uh, this is a track from a film called The Highway Rat. I have no idea what it's about, um, but I have listened to the score uh, based on your selection here, and it is utterly delightful. But um, why don't you uh, explain to us uh, what this is and why you brought it with you? Sure. I've um, got a couple of tracks, this one and the next one, um, that I kind of wanted to play, um, I guess, sort of for my kids, um, uh, but also to um, remind everyone that there is some absolutely beautiful music written for animated kids' films, basically, um, and, and this is one of them. I'm assuming it'll be only known to people who have kids of a certain age. Um, <laughs> so there's um, a number of books by two people, Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler. Most people will know the very famous one, which by no means is the best, the Gruffalo. But there's um, there's a whole um, a whole series of, of these books, which are, um, as books, absolutely delightful. Um, and this one, The Highway Rat, I'm holding a copy in front of me, is is a delightful book um and it's a, a sort of a tale of this um rat that um rides a horse up and down the highway and steals all the other uh, animals food uh, until he gets really fat um but then uh, ends up being um uh, duped by a duck um who suggests there's a load of food in the cave and he goes into the cave and, and pretty much doesn't come back and they then get all their food back um but the BBC um, started dramatising these stories at Christmas time. Normally, I think they're shown on either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Um, and, and they started doing these, I think it was maybe four or five years ago. Let's have a look. I think the first one was, OK, 2009. So the Gruffalo was done in 2009. And then since then, they've done uh, Gruffalo's Child, Room on the Broom, Stick Man, Hyro Rat, Zog. Uh, Snail and the Whale and um, uh, Zog and the Flying Doctors and then uh, I think Superworm was last year so as I say for people with kids of a certain age you'll know exactly what they are otherwise you won't have a clue but um, they're, they're delightful they're really well animated so so they look lovely I'm sure you can find some clips or, or maybe even the whole thing on, on online somewhere um, but all of these um little they're half hour films effectively all of these little films are um scored by this as you say this this guy rene Aubrey. he is a french um composer as you might suspect from the name he's 65 years old and that's about as far as it goes um he he does um uh composing so so he i've, I've listened to some of his other stuff and it's kind of rock pop instrumental kind of classical so it's it's nothing like these scores so if, if you listen to this and you think oh i love this i'd like to go and check him out check out his scores to the other tv series he's done don't go and check out his his normal work because it's it's quite diff quite different he's a um a multi-instrumentalist so it seems like he plays a lot of the instruments that, that are featured on on his own stuff um, but he also seems a bit of an enigma. Um, I, I struggled to find anything about him. There's no real interviews. I couldn't find any footage of him being interviewed. I could find footage of him playing his guitar and stuff, but but that was about as far as it, it, it went. 
I've no idea how he got these jobs because he doesn't really score films. There's a couple of, um, I think, French films in his um, filmography. But apart from that, it's just these these films for the BBC of these kids' books. And, and that's it. But, boy, are these brilliant scores. And and you've obviously heard High Row Rat, which, which personally I think is probably my favourite. And uh, my youngest son loves this book probably the most i thought well you know there we go we'll play that but um but it's it's just a delightful score with with lovely woodwinds and just uh, i don't know it just it just fits the, the the kind of aesthetic of what they're going for with with these um little animated films just just perfectly i i think it's um i think it's lovely uh, as I say, unfortunately, the composer is 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 really quite mysterious. So, so I can't tell anyone um, any more about him. If I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how many listeners you have from France. But if if there's anyone out there that that knows more about him, then then please contact um, Eric and and let us know, you know, who he is and and a bit more about him. Yeah, this is uh, this is new to me, and again, this is why I love. Uh, doing shows of this sort. I mean, I, I never expect to hear something brand new, but the all request shows that I've done the three of them and these shows uh, it's just great to hear stuff that I've never heard before. And, you know, I've got a collection of close to 7,000 albums and there's always something new. And uh, I'm glad it was this. Cause I saw the, the cover of the the album just before I played it, and when I played the score, I was like, "Well, this is exactly the way that this 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 film would probably sound like." And so, yeah, for for your kids and for anybody else out there with uh, kids, I, I dedicate this to you. This is a, a delightful track from the film, an animated film called "The Highway Rat," with original score composed by Renee Aubrey. Thank you. 
and now we go from something I never heard before to um, one of my favorites. And I think this is a score that pretty much caught a lot of people off guard. One, because the film Planes had music by Mark Mancina, who, I mean, we hadn't heard from him in a while. And two, the trailer to this film, which, I mean, it's insufferable because I can't stand the, oh God, I, quick history. I like cars. I hated cars too with a passion. But the thing about cars too is my son was the perfect age for that film. And he wanted to see it over and over and over and over again. And I absolutely, I hate cars too. So much, so, so much. Like I, I suffered through this film in the theater with him. And I mean, the things you do uh, for your kids that was one of those. That and Rio 2. Oh my God. Two of the worst theatrical experiences I've ever had. Anyway, so they come out with planes, which is just like cars, but instead it's talking planes instead of talking cars. And I think this was supposed to be a direct-to-video movie, but then they decided that due to the popularity of cars, they're going to release it theatrically. It actually made it quite a bit of money, and then I think they had planes too. But in any case, um, you know, Mark Mancina's name is attached to it, and I don't think any of us thought anything of it. And then we hear the music from the trailer, and we're like, holy smokes, that's really good. And then we get to hear the, the score itself, and it is exceptional. But really, this track that you brought, the opening track on the, on the album for the, for the score, the, that soaring trumpet theme, and and then when the drums kind of kick in and the whole orchestra comes in, the build of this piece, and it's only, what, two and a half minutes long, it is one of the most extraordinary pieces of music I think Mancina has has ever written. And he's written some extraordinary scores. I mean, Twister is one of my all-time favorite. But um, why don't you tell us why you brought this track with you? Uh, you pretty much stole my thunder there. You, <laughs> yeah, I'm you, sorry. You, I'm you, sorry. You, you said exactly <laughs> I what I would have said. <laughs> I know this is your show, but man, <laughs> I love this piece. So, <laughs> but but I, I think the thing um, the thing that I've found particularly um, talking to you, but listening to you for all these years, is actually I think we share similarities in in what we like and, and what we really like, and, and maybe what we don't like. Um, and clearly, you feel the same way about about this score that I do. And um, by the way, I actually quite like cars too. I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> um, but my um, my eldest is um, is big on vehicles, mm. particularly things like diggers and tractors and all right. of that. Yeah. Um, and whilst he doesn't mind planes, he really enjoys planes too, which is subtitled Fire and Rescue. Yes. And um, and in that there's. Um, there's either a plane or a helicopter that drops these 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 little machines parachute out, and then one of them's got like a bus saw, and one of them's got a, a an axe or whatever, and then these little things parachute out, and then they chop up the stuff in the forest, and and he absolutely loves those. He, he loves it when they they come on and do their thing. Um, but I I hadn't seen because some it's silly isn't it you end up seeing some kids films because you think actually it's it's probably much better than just a kids film mm -hmm. so so things like um i don't know maybe uh, kung fu panda or shrek right. you know w w when i was growing up even though i was probably not the right age for shrek i probably saw shrek at the cinema because it was that kind of there was a buzz about it it was that yes. kind of thing i'd never seen planes or planes too um and then um 
you know, we, we started watching stuff like this um, and um, suddenly I was like, wow, this is a great score, really great score. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd probably heard the score before. I mean, I must have heard the score before, mm -hmm. but I don't think I'd, I'd really taken note. And, and the way you talked about the, um, the build and the, and the orchestration and the soaring, the way you get kind of, I don't know whether it is actually a pedal because it might move, but you, you get effectively strings that just play a note. Hmm. And then above that, you get this, ba, da, ba, ba, mm -hmm. or, you know, it's gone out of my head, but you get the trumpet over the top and, and that then builds. But when you get that set with visuals of a plane flying, it's like two pieces of the same puzzle mm. because that music exactly demonstrates what happens on the screen that that trumpet is literally the plane soaring about in the sky mm -hmm. and it's it's perfect it just absolutely hits the nail on the head for for what this film needed for a score the only thing you might say if you're not big on the main theme is the score for planes literally uses that main theme a lot right. I think there's I think there's maybe three there's three particular themes one of which is the main theme uh, and that is used a lot in the film but you know as long as you love that then boy it's a absolutely knockout score and and I think he's another one that maybe has had a bit of a resurgent um in in film scoring because he also did because technically, so the Cars films are Pixar. Technically, these plane films aren't Pixar. They're right. just Disney. That's right. Although they look the same and, and, yeah. and they're supposed to be from the same universe. They're, they're actually not Pixar. But then um, Mancina came back and did um, oh, another favourite of one of my kids. What is it? Moana. So he did the score right. to that. Although the songs are written by um, um, the guy who did Hamilton. Um, yes. The... Um, the actual score for that is is Mancino, and actually that's another pretty decent score um, to to listen to. Um, but I think, yeah, I think when I, when I was looking at you know a track from a, a sort of a, a kids film or an animated film to play, I thought, what shall I play? And there's it, it's one of those mediums for me that you really can't go wrong because there's some composers I'm not such a big fan of. Take. Thomas Newman, for instance, who post American Beauty, I've kind of gone off. But mm. when he does things like Finding Nemo or Wally, -E, those scores seem to resonate with me a bit more than anything else he does. Right. Um, and, and I think animated films bring out something in a composer that is different to when they score a, a real life action film. I don't know what it is, and I don't know whether you would agree or whether you could even explain that. Yeah, but I just... something happens with an animated film to to make the composer go and, and, and create something that's much more of a knockout than, than what they would normally do. I, I just think that they're allowed to be more expressive um, because they are quote unquote children's films and they're not taken overly serious for the lack of a better word, right? So they're just like traditional, let's say, um, like How to Train a Dragon, for instance. It's an action adventure film and it's not taking itself too seriously, although there are some incredible dramatic moments I think that composers are just allowed for some reason, and it's animation and horror. They are just allowed to express themselves and be noticed and allowed almost to take over a story. And that is allowed in those genres or mediums um, with animation being a medium. And 
and I don't know why more composers don't write for, for animation, but again, for some reason, composers are just allowed to be a bit more expressive where emotions and themes are really allowed to come out. They are almost encouraged. And, and I love listening to uh, scores that come out of, of animation just because of that reason. It's, it's, it's the type of music I fell in love with when I first discovered this genre or this art form of, of music back in the, back in the nineties. I mean, I always enjoyed it when I, when I first started seeing movies in the eighties, but you know, once I started hearing albums and, and realizing that John Williams was writing um, music for my favorite films, I mean, that's the type of music that I, that I grew up with and, and really um, still appreciate to this day. And so, yeah, when it comes down to animated films, I jump at those as quick as I can because I just know that I'm going to get something um, expressive with, with feeling, with heart. And um, why that is, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, that's my best guess. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, just, just something happens. Um, and I think this score in particular is quite a nice, um, you know, uh, I guess a lot of what we've heard already is probably solely quite orchestral and this is quite a nice almost like a sort of a, a rock pop score because you get elements of you know drum kits acoustic guitar comes in which you can hear in the mix quite clearly but then you've still got the orchestra doing its thing and the trumpet soaring but but actually it's it's quite a nice mix and i wonder whether people at the time thought maybe this would date or maybe they thought it was already dated at, at that time but but even listening to it now, I, I, I still think it's good. I don't think any of that element of this score matters to me. I, th I think, well, probably if anything, it, it adds to it. it. It makes it more enjoyable. Yeah, it feels like a, you know, like a, 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 a classic, a classic score, really. Just that in that sound with a, with a few modern instrumentations. But I mean, well, one thing that really separates it from some of the other, um, I mean, Mark Mancini has worked with uh, Remote Control Studios, and and I think something that separates him and Harry Gregson Williams and, and and John Powell and a few others, um, just his uh, sense of and skill at orchestration. Um, nothing feels like it's just kind of flat. You know, you're just playing a melody with an ostinato and, and maybe um, something else. But, I mean, there are some wonderful orchestral accents. So just because the theme is done doesn't mean you can't do anything interesting afterwards. So, you know, when you have that long line theme, it's like, da -na 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 -na, and then you got that blast of brass, right? Ba -ba 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 -ba, right? Which then moves you on to the yeah. next line of the melody. It's that yeah. little bit in between. You're like, oh, that's that's kind of neat. All right, now we're on to the melody again. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, what else are you gonna do? And yes. that's the sort of stuff that I find um, that I find really interesting. And then I get the feeling that those little accents are not necessarily for the film, but I think that that's a point where the composer's like, ah, I'm just gonna add this little flourish because I want to. And that's it. Could be totally wrong, but I always get a feeling when I hear sort of stuff like that that the composers are doing that because they're really enjoying. Uh, what they do. Yeah, and I think in this case, uh, we could go back and forward humming it, but it, it fits because you've got almost like the start. It, it's again a bit call and response. You've got the start of the melody, yeah. 
And then you've got that, and then it goes, right. and it's kind of like the end of the melody. Yes. And, and that bit, it almost joins the two together. Um, but like you, I think the orchestration in this is great. And, and actually, when I was re-listening to the soundtrack for this, I thought um, bits of it sounded, because, you know, when you listen to like a David Arnold score, there's there's quite a complexity to the orchestration. And I thought it almost had a bit of that in it. And, and I looked up and it, it wasn't Nicholas Dodd. I, I forget who it was now who did the orchestration, but it was someone else. But it has that similar feeling. There's there's quite a few of the sort of, I guess, more actiony bits where the 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 orchestration is quite complex. You know, there's there's lots going on, um, and it's it yeah, it, it makes it more interesting. I think. Oh, I completely agree. I think when you can find, um, you know, an a, a composer just adding in more more colors. Um, or accents or things of that sort into the score instead of just kind of doing the bare minimum. That's where, that's where I fall in love with film music and, and the composers that are writing for it. But yeah, uh, Planes is, um, is utterly delightful. And so here it is. This is the main theme from Mark Mancina's score to Planes, which was released in 2013.
from Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. And you're listening to The Flagship Show with Eric Woods. Our second to last track comes from one of my all-time favorite scores. It is in my top 10 of all time. I still think it's the greatest score written this century. I have said my piece about this score. I've been on other podcasts talking about it in great length. I've talked about it here on this podcast at great length. I'm so glad that you brought this track along. However, I'm kind of interesting why you picked part two of Hand of Fate from Signs instead of part one, which is probably the more exciting piece. But part two is um, has a bit more emotion and has that religioso feel to it. So you go ahead. I'll be quiet. Tell me about Signs. I'm so glad you said all of that because... I wanted to make sure I included a, a piece of music on this um, that represented you and what you bring to us as a community, not only with your patrons, with your show, but just in the film music community. You know, some of the stuff we have to put up with people moaning about certain composers doing this or certain TV shows not using these themes or all of that kind of stuff. There's so much goes on. <laughs> yeah. And and you're such a, such an unflappable person. You just <laughs> deal with it. And and it's just it's just lovely um the way it all goes on and, and it's fine and um particularly obviously what you do with this show and and what you um what you simply set out to do you know it's to to showcase your love of of film music and, and normally good film music and and you just play some 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 great great tunes um and it's it's just an important thing to sit back and go you know what you do is 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 really good really good and, and there's people all around the world listening and, and and we're all there for the same reason because of our, our love for this this art that that you have a deep love for as well. And and I I knew I wanted to pick a, a a track to play that that was you know representative of all of that. And originally, of course, I thought, well, I'll play something from probably Raiders. And and I thought we've already had some Williams, so I was like, well, what we're we going to play? And then I thought, well, maybe um, Star Trek. But then I thought, oh, we've already had Jerry Goldsmith, so what else can we have? And eventually I came upon Signs. I was like, I know that Eric really, really loves this score. It's a score that I also love as well. It's a fantastic film. And I thought, yeah, we've got to play a track from this. Um, obviously, slightly disappointed um, by the sound of it that I'm not playing part one. Oh, but no, 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 no. For me... No, no I'm not, I'm not okay. disappointed. I just want to be clear because because <laughs> usually part one is like, that's the go-to, right? That's the big climactic cue. And this mm. is everything afterwards and it's just as important but it's it's interesting that yeah that you said two instead so i'm curious why i i just think i mean i maybe wanted something a bit mellower sort of towards the end of this this long list of of, of tunes that we've played and and i wanted something that maybe was a bit more sort of conclusive in in terms of the score because 
from from my opinion of of what you get in the score there's there's lots of bits and then eventually by the time you get to to the end here almost all of those threads are sewn together in in this particular track which is the end of the film and then i think the start of the end credits um and it's just it's just a a, a lovely track and and for me it just it does that it kind of ties everything up now yes it's probably a nicer track in in that sense maybe than than some of the other uh, tracks from from the rest of the score and certainly different to to part one but I, I just thought maybe that that was what was what was needed at this point to 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 have something like that but it still has all of the elements from from this fantastic score um by james newton howard assuming most people must have must have seen this film i i seem to remember it was big at the time because if i remember correctly um m night Shyamalan around that period had a number of big hit films didn't he that was that was kind of his time he'd obviously um done sixth sense before this and i forget what it was after this was it unbreakable yeah. and then maybe lady in the water or something there was no this was is a... the third one this is science science was his third one he did um, okay he did the village after this and then i think lady in the water so right this okay. was yeah science is great but this was sort of the kind of like the beginning of his downfall <laughs> so <laughs> well but yeah uh, yeah but he had a he had a trio of a pretty darn good movies yeah yeah, yeah, and and I think this uh, will come on to back to school in a sec, but I think this this film is fantastic, and I rewatched it. Um, it's um, Disney Plus, I think, in the UK is where it's streaming, but it's it's streaming, and I was annoyed because I couldn't find it, so I, I guess I don't have a physical copy, so I must um, I must go out and get that. But it's still a fantastic score, uh, sorry, a fantastic film, and I think. I mean, I've probably not seen everything that Mel Gibson's done, but but if you're looking for something that's a bit more meaty and serious, I think this is his best performance. Um, and I think ev everyone in this is great. Obviously, Joaquin Phoenix um, as as the the brother is is very good. Um, and it 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 was funny because it it resonates maybe a bit more now, given what we've just been living through in terms of the political landscape and you know conspiracy theorists and covid and the pandemic and being locked up and all of that kind of stuff i think i i found it much weirder watching it now probably than i had done the last time i saw it you know when you've got things like um uh, you know the tin hats and stuff and and at some point joaquin phoenix takes the tv away from the kids because it's too scary but then he puts the TV in the cupboard and shuts yeah. himself in the cupboard right. watching it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I, I genuinely think it's, uh, I was going to use the masterpiece word. I, I don't, uh, I don't know whether maybe the film is quite a masterpiece. I, I would say the score is, but, but I, I think the score is, uh, sorry, the film is, is a very, very good film. Um, I think it's, you know the, the the narrative and the story is interesting and and the way it sort of sets up as one thing and then quickly becomes something different because at the start of the film you've got these these crop circles appear and then you know the police turn up and then there's suggestion it's some kids and stuff like that and you think oh, okay fine what's this going to be and then it turns into 
you know, eventually something quite different, you know, to do with our, our paranoia and um, conspiracy theories and, and what other life out there might be. And I don't know, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant film. And I mentioned, I think, in part one, that there were three films in my list where the score and the film can't be separated. They're, they're so intertwined that they work perfectly. Long Goodbye was one, The Piano was the other, and Signs is my third one. Because the score that James Newton Howard brings to this is a masterpiece. It's just brilliant. And, and for anyone that wants maybe a bit more of an academic look at it, but an equally fascinating look. There is a, a book which I've got in front of me called James Newton Howard Signs, a film score guide by Eric Heiner. Is that how you say his name? And it, a friend of the show. And it's um, it's a fantastic book for anyone that hasn't got it and, and loves this score. Go out and get it because it, it breaks down everything. Um, obviously, people will know that the score sort of the, the the backbone of the score is is what in this book is known as the the three note motif so you get this da 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 ba da da and and that pretty much is is throughout the film but you get it <clears throat> in different sort of guises so you'll get a a more um sort of spooky one uh, you might get a sort of a, a mysterious one it talks about here mysterious ominous benevolent you know, uncertain, tender, but, but it's, and, and, and it doesn't have to be, you know, those same notes necessarily. So you've got that rhythm. So it, it, it's two quicker notes and then a, a slower note, it, but, but, but that can be, um, that could be any different, um, pitch, you know, you can, you can play any notes and, and as long as you've got that, that rhythm, then that stands out throughout the film. And I have a feeling that this this particular track that that I I sort of suggested playing this part too is the only track where you get that figure throughout the whole track. I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, but it's just the the genesis of that score being built on such a simple thing. You know, a lot of the time we we've already talked about you know complex music and it doesn't have to be like that. But then. A lot of time, particularly now, we hear about composers doing relatively simple things where it's, you know, bowing a dustbin lid and it's and they and they think that's amazing. And it's and it's simple, sure, but it's, you know, a load of crap. But but then you get something like this where where he sits down and, and, and works out this this particular motif and then builds everything around that. Um, and and that itself, that three note motif, is perfect for this film. It just it, it just resonates throughout that film. It, it it's hard to put into words just how how perfect I think that is to the film. And it's interesting because um, he was brought on board quite early. So when we were talking about trailer music before, he um, scored the trailer as he was scoring the film or writing the music for the film. And, and I went back just the other day and, and looked on YouTube to, to watch the trailer again. And it's great because you get this very sort of 
ominous, almost scary feel about the trailer. There's, there's not a lot visually shown in the trailer necessarily, but you get this quite big brash music and you've got this ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum, and it's all going on and, and it sets you on edge. Um, and the main title for this does does exactly that as well. It almost reminds me of a, um, a Bernard Homan score to a to a Hitchcock. It has that feel about it. Um, and and the way the movie starts with with the opening credits, but you get this um, cacophony of music. It's a bit like the the music that we that we heard earlier from Frankenstein. It it it's very in your face to start with, but then after you've got the the opening um, main title, the music then dips right down, and then you don't get um, a lot of uh, a lot of loud music until much later on. And in actual fact, I think. Um, it's talked talked about in 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 the book here. Um, Shineman is on record as stating that um, he likes to make films without musical scores, and and so Howard has a job of of knowing when there should be music and and when obviously Sh- um, Shineman might like music. Um, th- they obviously always know that ultimately there's there's going to be something there, but. Uh, as it says here, Howard's view is the director and composer should be collaborators and the music should only accent the narrative in order to elevate it. And 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 that is exactly what this film score does. You know, it, it is there when you need it and it does what you need it to elevate what is happening on, on the screen. Um, but it's not always there and you don't always need it. And it's not constant, you know, it's... It's quite the the opposite, unfortunately, of, of a lot of scores today. Um, but but for me, it's like you said, it is probably still one of the best scores post. This was post two thousand, wasn't it? Post two thousand one, yeah, or two thousand two. Yeah. It was one of those okay. years, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. early on in the century, so it was. But you know, there's there's not a lot really that could or has beaten it so far. Um, yeah, yeah. I I think it's. I think it's highly underrated. Um, and I know that I, I mean, like I said, I rated it as the best thing that's been written in the past 22 years or even of all time. Um, it's in my top 10, but you've, uh, you've hit the nail on the head there where spotting is such an important part of the filmmaking process with the composer and the director. And yeah, um, Shyamalan didn't want any music in this film at all. And, um, I'm not sure what James Newton Howard did to convince him that there needed to be music, but there's just enough. It's not a very, very long score. And I think that with the creation of these this three-note pattern, um, it, it you really didn't need a lot. And if there was more, it probably would have gotten annoying. Um because, I mean, it is these three notes. And so what can you do with it? And I think that's the strength of James Newton Howard as a composer and orchestrator is what he does with those notes, how he changes them up, the, 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 the variations of that theme, and, and then how he um, incorporates other elements of the orchestra and counterpoint to that theme. And that's where he beautifully does that here in Hand of Fate Part 2. Um, but you're right. It, the score is needed when it is, when the film needs it. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't interfere. It definitely enhances. 
I mean, that whole opening title is totally and crazily over the top, but that foreshadows Hand to Fate Part 1, which I think is bloody brilliant. But it also, I think it also signifies just a bit bit of fun um, because it is a horror movie. Um, it's a horror thriller, but it's going to scare you. And, and right off the bat, that's what James Newton Howard does with his music because the first time I ever heard this score was in context. I had no idea what I was about to experience. And so when I heard those main titles, it was just so, oh, it's so delicious <laughs> because you just, that sets you up. Those main titles, I miss main titles. I miss traditional main titles that have this overture or this piece of music that's going to set you up for the rest of the ride. And that's what I love about it. But but then, as I say, you get this break. And actually, I found mm-hmm. I found the bit here. So it says here, um, the first music heard, as I said previously, is the main titles. Um, and then right after um, Morgan says to Graham, I think God did it, which is approximately three minutes after the main titles end, that's the first time you then hear music in the film. So you get this massive opening like like you said an overture it's this big bombastic piece and then nothing and if i remember correctly there's lots because they're on a farm there's lots of sounds you know crickets or whatever they are and maybe wind and stuff and it almost feels like some of that is emphasized so whilst you haven't got music you've got lots of this sound around you so i guess there was quite a lot went on with the sound design or something yeah, the I was going to mention the the, the sound of the movie um, is just as important as the score, and so that's why I feel like the score does um, kind of take a backseat at, at at times, and and the rustling of the of the the dried corn, and then the sounds of the 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 aliens, or just one of the most magnificent sequences is the asthma attack sequence, where the screen is entirely black, and you have no idea what's happening in that basement. And it's just sound and voices and then just some ominous music from, from James Newton Howard. And he's not um, overstepping. And, and, and I think that's, that's got to be done more often. And I'm not sure whether the, the, the sound people collaborated with, with James Newton Howard or his music editor to make sure that there was a perfect balance. But there was a great story in the making of Jurassic Park book that I have that I found out that John Williams basically collaborated with the sound team for Jurassic Park to know exactly when music was needed and what type of music was needed, when he needed his music to duck out for the sound effects and when the sound effects were going to duck out for his music. And I think that is super important because these days, I mean, the sound mix is just so unbelievably loud. They're just pushing it to unbelievable um, levels and music is just getting drowned out and you can hear it. I mean, I remember going to see the rise of Skywalker and back when the original trilogy came out, I remember when that, that first splash of star Wars music came out with the star Wars title, you know, fading into the background and that crawl, it was just right in your face and it was really loud and it just felt great. But nowadays that music mix, even the dialogue is just mixed so low that that feeling is gone and sound effects are just overtaking everything. And, and you can, I don't know, again, I don't know why composers write music these days because you can barely hear it. Um, with the exception of Christopher Nolan movies who, I mean, that guy appreciates music like, like no other. And even to drown out key pieces of dialogue and sound effects, he's, he, if he'll let Zimmer's music soar. But this film signs 
was I, I, I again, it was, it could have been this beautiful collaboration between the music editing team and the sound effects team. And they came together and they crafted, I mean, this film is not only beautiful visually, I mean, it is an incredibly well-directed film and it is so well shot. Everything is, everything's done with a purpose, but the sound, the sound plays such a key role and each part of that music team and that sound team knows exactly when they need to be um, enhanced. And I think that's what makes this such a, a really great film and an underrated film. And, and again, another reason why James Newton Howard's score is so strong, because I think it is allowed to be uh, noticed in the film every time it pops up. It, it, it's, it's helping tell that story but it also creates the atmosphere. It creates the emotion. It creates the excitement. It creates the, 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 the terror, the, the, the drama. It's, oh God, it's so good. And, and I think more people need to give signs, not only the music, but the film, another shot, because I really do think it's that good. I think, as I said as well, given what we've been experiencing more recently, it might resonate more um, with people who either haven't seen it or haven't seen it for a long time, so I, I would wholeheartedly agree. It's it, it in my opinion, it's it's old enough now to to be called a classic movie. Yeah, it's a classic movie. It's a classic score. Yeah. Um, and I I think James Newton Howard, you may disagree. I don't think he always gets the recognition he deserves. He's he's a long-standing composer. I, I forget his age, but we must be talking. He's, he's probably nearly seventy. 60s or yeah, 70s, 60s. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you go back to things like Wire Up. I mean, don't forget this was a guy that was a, a keyboard player for Elton John's band, and and he wanted to do some orchestrations for Elton John, so he asked him and was able to do that, and then the rest is history. But there's things like Wire Up. Um, you obviously did the the show with uh, Randy about um, Waterworld. Um, but but then more recently there was the fantastic score to. Oh, what was the film? Red Red Sparrow. Yes, where where he did Brilliant. that sort of Tchaikovsky esque suite. Um, yeah, he, he. I think he's an underrated composer. Maybe outside of us in the community, maybe we appreciate him, but maybe general um, public going to see films don't don't really appreciate him. And he's you you talked about someone else earlier being a sort of a comedian. I think he he can do that because he can do very different scores. A personal favourite of mine is um, Salt. You know, it's a yes. fairly generic action film and there's drums and all of that, but but it's a really fun film. And if I want some, uh, sorry, a fun score, and if I want something actually to put on in the background, often that'll be the one I go to. Um, and But that's nothing like Signs and also nothing like Wire Up. Um, yeah. Yeah, his, um, his 90s output... Um, there's just so many incredible, incredible scores. But then the point where I thought that he was definitely going to get the recognition that he deserved, um, was when he started working with Disney and he worked on an incredible Disney trilogy of movies, uh, Dinosaur, Atlantis and Treasure Planet. And if that was, if those came out 10 years earlier and maybe had a couple of really good hit songs, those three scores would have won him Academy Awards. They are amongst three of the best things he's ever done. And I mean, when you look at this guy's career, you're right. There's, there's Wyatt Earp, there's um, 
there's Unbreakable, there's Signs, there's Waterworld, there's The Fugitive, there's uh, Alive, um, Man in the Moon, uh, I mean, Flatliners, um, it just the list goes on and on and on. And, and, and the fact that he's what, I think he's been nominated twice for an Academy Award. And I mean, I think everybody knows what I feel about the Academy Awards, but still there's, there's maybe it's three times. Um, but there's the lack of recognition for some of our great composers. Uh, Thomas Newman is one. Uh, Alan Silvestri is another. James Newton Howard's another. Um, you know, Michael Kamen barely getting a sniff when he was alive. Um, James Horner wouldn't have won anything else if it wasn't for Titanic, because if he didn't have that, he was barely getting... I mean, it's just really sad. And James Newton Howard still writing some strong, strong, strong music as, as, as you know, Jungle Cruise is so much fun. But then again, he's surrounding himself with directors who love that sort of stuff. And, and so I'm glad that he's still able to, you know, work out some of his more dramatic senses with, uh, you know, News of the World and then, you know, uh, Hidden Life with is just absolutely gorgeous, but nobody saw it. That the saddest thing about all this is that the collaboration between M. Night Shyamalan and James Newton Howard is over. And that is one of the most disappointing, awful things in the world is the fact that Shyamalan's career just sank so hard. And even during this sort of revival that he's had, that he can't afford James Newton Howard or that he hasn't gone back to him to score his pictures because that is the ultimate disappointment. Even if Shyamalan's movies suck... You're always going to get great, great music. Because if I remember correctly, you'll tell me uh, what the film was. And by the way, he was nominated for seven. Um, oh, Academy. is it really seven? Yeah. So oh it's um, Prin- Prince of Tides, The Fugitive, yeah. My Best Friend's Wedding, The Village, Michael Clayton, Defiance, and News of the World. Holy smokes. Okay. Well, I was way off. I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't win any of those. No, he didn't win any of those. No. I, I hope one day that he gets the the recognition that he deserves, whether it's you know with the honorary Oscar or just something else. But I mean, I here's the thing: the film music community appreciates what he does. I mean, we all know that he's great, and we all enjoy a lot of the the scores that that he's written. And I remember those early two thousands, and 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 he scored the trailers for Dinosaur, Atlantis, and and Treasure Planet. And I'm like, what in the world? is this this is him on like he put the afterburners on he just went all out for those movies and i'm not sure what kind of clicked but he was just composing on a whole other level and i mean he had already written some incredible classics but those three man what a time to be alive to hear him uh write those scores because they were just simply magnificent and i mean like i said they were beautiful pieces of trailer music that had the theme from the film in it. And, and, and they were just like fully realized animated sequences that just perfectly sold the movie and the score. And Oh man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That dinosaur score in particular oh, for me wow. is, is just a, a absolute knockout. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So no. And I, and I, I, I thank you very much for, for, for thinking of me uh, when making your list because uh, yeah. Uh, signs. Yeah, it's just so good. So we're going to let this one play out and I'm sure you're all going to enjoy it. I know I love this and I love all the, all the, all the, all the warm variations of that three note motif in this piece. It's so great. 
And those classic Newton Howard string lines. Oh, oh, so good. And great recording by Sean Murphy as well. This is Hand of Fate Part 2 from The Brilliant Signs.
Well, we've come to the end of yet another edition of Cinematic Sound Radio, and uh, it's really too bad that our chat here with uh, William Welch is going to end because I've just been having such a great time chatting with him about his his favorite scores. And so, before we get to the uh, last track, uh, Will, is there anything that uh, you know you want to say, you want to sell, you want to talk about, or? Uh... Or you just want to get back into the last uh, track that you have for us? <laughs> um, I I don't know. People are, are probably uh, bored of listening to me by now. Nah. But but no, there's there's nothing in particular I want to 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 sort of say or plug. You know, it's just been uh, an absolute pleasure to to be able to do this. Um, like you said, I've had a great chat with you, and it's been been really good fun, interesting. Um, yeah, I, I can't say much more than that. It's been, yeah, been a really good time. Well, I just want to say that, I mean, and I've said it a million times, um, especially since beginning the, the Patreon here, just, you know, really, I, I thank you very much for for your contributions. Um, it really does, it, it means the world to me. I'm, I mean, you have no idea what it was like to kind of open it up um, back in April of 2021 and then just kind of seeing you know, people signing up. And I, I never thought in a million years that I'd, I'd get this community that we have going on right now. And there's about, you know, 42 of us. And um, it really, it really does. It means so much. And, um, and the fact that you're, you're willing to sign up and, and kind of, you know, help me get through some of the, the humps of producing uh, this show. I mean, I don't need a, a lot of money, but the, you know, any, any bit of donation does help. And, you know, you guys help, um, you guys help produce the show and you also help inspire me and, and, and uh, the, all the other hosts as well. And, um, so I'm, I'm glad I'm able to kind of give back, uh, this way and, and getting an opportunity to, to, to chat with you, um, and chat with other, you know, patrons as well. I wish I could chat, chat with everybody. So yeah, this, this is, this is really kind of the highlight of, uh, of all of this. And, um, but I, especially, you know, you and, and, and Joe, um, for what you're contributing um, every month, I, it, it just it, it just really mean, means the world to me. So thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's just my pleasure to to kind of be here and make a feel like I'm making um, make a difference as well to, to the running of all of this. Um, I mean, obviously, your show in particular is is a brilliant show. I get the impression we have similar likes and dislikes in terms of music and, and you normally play stuff that, that I like, um, which is great. But then then the whole host of other people, Jason, um, Eric, Lee, uh, Randy, you know, everyone involved um, brings brings their own to this network of, of podcasts. And yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, to end off today's show, um we're going to play music to it's a pretty damn solid score. I don't think there's any David Arnold James Bond score that I don't like. I mean, Die Another Day is really different, but I really do appreciate some of the tracks on here, but I remember when he wrote The World Is Not Enough and I heard that opening uh sequence just before the gun barrel. It, it was like, wow, this is taking some of that modern techno 
orchestral stuff that he was doing in Tomorrow Never Dies and just ramping it up to 11. So, uh, but you haven't picked that track and you've picked something from the, um, the expanded edition uh, release of uh, The World Is Not Enough, which came out from La La Land Records. So why don't you tell us why you wanted to end the show with this score? Um, a number of reasons. Um, first, I'd like to thank La La Land Records for giving us the expanded edition. They did this and Die Another Day. And obviously there's people out there hoping we might get maybe Tomorrow Never Dies or, or something else as well. Because I think La La Land have also done um, Independence Day. Did they also do Stargate or was that Entrada? Um, they did do Stargate. Yeah, so um, thanks to, to them for, for this fantastic presentation. I, I know that you like to sort of end shows with a sort of an end title piece effectively. Uh, and and I knew that I was going to try and do that. There would be some form of an end title piece that would be my last piece. And I knew that there were two things that hadn't yet come up in conversation. Not properly anyway. One of those was David Arnold and one of those was Bond, um, which are two, um, you know, massive, um, massive things in 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 my life really and um <clears throat> actually there wasn't much to choose from to be honest um in terms of entitled pieces because normally you get songs over the end credits of bond and it's funny enough it's a bit of a shame because david arnold and don black wrote a song uh, i think it's scott walker uh, who sings it and it's a fantastic jazzy number which they wrote for the end title and then uh, the producer said no actually we want um just like a remix uh, of some of the score stuff um, and so actually, when you talked about the, the opening um, boat chase, which is fantastic and fantastically scored, um, a lot of this entitled piece is kind of chopped up bits from, from that bit of the film, to be honest. Um, but yeah, just and, and like you said, all of his scores are, are knockout scores because, you know, again, like we've talked about with some of the other composers, he clearly really, really loves what he's doing. And in particular, he loved doing Bond. Um, for me, this score for The World Isn't Enough is is actually my favourite. It's it's not necessarily, I think, his best, because that's probably Casino. Um, but I think what he, what he did on Tomorrow Never Dies is great, but I've always had the feeling that he just tried a bit too hard, or maybe he was told to. And, <laughs> I and that's think not, so. It's, it's not a criticism, <laughs> right. but it was just like probably <laughs> the filmmakers or the director said, oh, by the way, it's been five minutes, stick the Bond theme in here, and then, oh, it's been another five minutes, come on, you could do that again. Yeah. And, it, and it just feels a bit over the top. Whereas for this one, I think like you were sort of alluding to, he's almost found his groove, and here he's doing what he wants to do. And it's updating that sound, but in quite a good way, I think. I no, I agree, and um, I'm pretty sure the the instruction to David Arnold tomorrow never dies was, don't do Eric Sarah. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm, it's amazing how polarizing that score is. Because I thought like universally that was like one of the most hated scores in the universe but man does it ever have its fans but i'm pretty sure they're like we need to bring back that classic berry sound and you're right anytime you get a chance to play that james bond theme and it's just gonna be james bond all the time and i love it i i think 
I think Tomorrow Never Dies is you're right. I mean, later on it becomes like David Arnold doing exactly what he wants to do, but it like Tomorrow Never Dies just feels like a mix of uh, John Barry and what uh, David Arnold was doing on Roland Emmerich movies. Um, it's just really too bad that from the inception that he wasn't writing the 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 main title theme, even though he wrote the main title theme for 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 Tomorrow Never Dies. It's just, it makes no sense. It makes no sense not to have your composer write this, help write the song. And since she's such a good songwriter too. Yes. If, if, I'm, if I'm looking at all of the Bond scores that have ever been, the best ones, in my opinion, are always the ones where the composer of the score contributes in some way to the writing of the song on the opening credits. For me personally, again, the dinosaur comes out. What I would like is the composer and the lyricist to sit down and do that song. Now, in the case of World Is Not Enough, that's exactly what happened because Don Black and, and David Arnold write the song. And actually, I think the reason probably my favorite score is Casino, uh, sorry, my favorite score is World Is Not Enough and I think the best score is Casino. And they're the two films where he wrote the song and the score. The other three films, he didn't write the, the song, although, you know, there was an end title song for Tomorrow Never Dies. Which was supposed but to be the main th- title. Which, of course, was and, yes. and and should have been because the Sheryl Crow song's not that good. No, it's not good. And, and the, the Katie Lang version, I mean, when you put that up against the credits, holy cow, is it great. And, of course, the main theme is in that score. So, man, yeah, missed opportunity. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that is what certainly... F- from my point of view as a Bond fan, that's what I want. I want to be able to hear that um, the 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 lines of of the song woven into the score. Um, and it, it obviously it happens on more of them than it doesn't. Although latterly it it doesn't really happen. But um, but obviously of all the John Barry scores, he wrote the songs. Um, and uh, Marvin Hamlish wrote the song for "Spy Love Me." Bill Conti wrote the song for "Your Eyes Only." Um, so there's only a few, as I say, most of them more recent, where where the song wasn't written by the the composer. But I, I think it definitely makes difference. Um, and um, yeah, I, I really like the song for this film. It may be one of those underrated songs. I don't know. People people might feel um, differently about it, but I think it it does what David Arnold does so well. It, it builds on a foundation of that sweeping string and brass doing its its thing, but adding that into a modern sound. So you get the band, you get the drums, the guitar, but particularly on the chorus, you know, where she comes in and it's like, the world is not enough, and then bang, the orchestra hits and you get that string. And 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 it is perfect. And I think that, as I say, that song's quite underrated fits in with the rest of the score really well um, and, and and does a perfect job. And he's a he's a really, really interesting character. Uh, for anyone that doesn't follow him on Twitter, you should follow him on Twitter because he's also really, really funny. And, and him and Michael Cicchino will often have, um, I suppose, banter between the two of them. Um, but I think um, he obviously, Arnold became big in the 90s, as you've said, with things like Stargate, Independence Day, Godzilla, uh, and Tomorrow Never Dies. And I think probably that was when I was watching, you know, growing up, that was when I was watching big 
sort of films and 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 you know they they were the films of of i suppose my source of generation i guess so so he he's a sound that i know but but also he and it, he himself says he harks back to john williams and he does end credit suites and he does melodies and he does things that you know we don't get so much of these days but he's also a guy from luton um, and I don't, I don't su suppose at all you know what Luton's like, but, you know, you would be surprised that someone who creates that music comes from Luton. Luton's about an hour and a half from me. There's a, there's a fairly famous safari park zoo thing that's nearby. So I've, I've been down there a couple of times, but Luton's very um, multicultural. There's, there's an airport there, so there's lots of people coming in and it's quite run down or, you know, traditionally it was run down. It's just an odd place for someone who's done what he's done to come from. And he talks about that himself. When you hear him talk, he says, you know, I'm just a kid from Luton. And and for people in the UK, that, that means something because that's odd. You know, it's it's not what happens. Um, but I, I, I think he's just a, a fantastic composer. Again, a bit like we talked about with um, Patrick Doyle, George Fenton, they're UK composers. Maybe that has something to do with it. But, you know, he doesn't score enough. For whatever reason, whether it's through choice, which fine, if, if that's what he wants to do, fine. But um, if it's not through choice, it's a damn shame that no one uh, no one gets in to do any big films anymore. Yeah, uh, well said. I couldn't say it any better than that yet. It's a, it's a shame that, that here's, here's another um, composer, and we were talking about James Newton Howard and M. Night Shyamalan, is that no matter how ridiculous Roland Emmerich movies have become, um, the fact that they, he and David Arnold had a falling out just before the Patriot mm -hmm. is a crime. It's a shame. I mean, look, I love John Williams, the score to the Patriot, <laughs> but the yeah. fact that at that point, that collaboration ended and just think about all the absolutely insane scores we could have got from David Arnold, just writing for Roland Emmerich's, uh, disaster movies that he writes. And they are terrible um but i the scores would be in, incredible and as it stands now the music for those movies are just <laughs> i mean we would have got a sequel to independence day from david arnold yeah. how amazing would that have been and that's the crime is when these collaborations end yet you still have directors that are out there just just creating so much trash and and meanwhile, you know, the composers are sitting there on, you know, doing absolutely nothing when they could still be working on at least something. And I mean, I know David Arnold, he, he you know, worked in television and, um, you know, did stuff for the Olympics and he's still being used. But the fact that also that he's not writing James Bond music anymore, which is another crime. I, I don't know what happened. I'm not sure why it's insane and it makes no sense to me. But in any case, uh Look, uh, before we get to this track, thank you again for, for coming on the show. Uh, thank you again for contributing to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. And uh, this has been fun. And it's been great to, to finally meet you and, and, and talk to you. And we will do this again um, because, in, in uh, I mean, hopefully we do this uh, a lot sooner than later. But, um, yeah, if you stick around, we'll definitely do this again, much like I'm going to do it again with... Uh, with Joe and he'll be able to select more tracks. And, um, I think there's, uh, I think there's a third person 
and I feel really bad for forgetting who that is. <laughs> there was a third person who signed up for for your tier because they really, really wanted to. Steve Carpix. So I'll be talking to him next. And then we go back in the rotation. So then it's Joe and you. And uh, But I'm looking forward to talking to you uh, again, whether it's uh, on this show or whether we finally get those Zoom meetings um, back up and running. And I think that'll be a lot of fun. So we'll talk again soon. Lovely. Excellent. Yes. Looking forward to it. All right. And we're going to end off today's program uh, with David Arnold's score to The World Is Not Enough. Thank you again for tuning in, folks. I really do appreciate it. And until next time, take care wherever you are in this world and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.